right now in a suburban basement not so far away. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, Episode 92, Star Wars. It is a period of unrest as the evening hours dwindle and the sun prepares to peak over the horizon. A VHS cassette rattles inside of a dust-covered tape rewinder. While our sleepless heroes, Dion and Blake, polish off their bucket of pizza and drain a three-liter bottle of store-brand cola. The stress of the pending film discussion weighs on them with the force of a thousand stampeding banthas as they gather their thoughts, prepare their notes, and put away their action figures. Tonight they will explore, arguably, their most iconic film to date. A film that not only changed popular culture and the lives of millions of children, but the world forever. incredible smell you've discovered well thank you we're recording oh well hey surprise (laughs) welcome back merry special holiday gift under the tree yeah this is this is this is we left a gift early under the tree for every one of you listeners out there we talked we contacted your parents or your guard your legal guardians (laughs) or the people you grew up with and we put a a thingy under your tree, or your your menorah candle, labra, or your um, or or we just gave you. We knocked on the door and ran. Yeah, we left it on the doorstep. <laughs> left it on the doorstep. It's not a mail bomb or anything like that. It's not a flaming bag of dog poop. Yes, that you have to put out or nothing like that. But um, yes, this is a surprise even to us. It was very surprising. You know, we were hanging out, and uh, we decided. We watched Star Wars. Yeah, as we always do. <laughs> we watched the holiday special first, and we said, hey, let's go back and let's watch. Let's throw on a, let's start it quote, unquote, a, new help, a new hope. Yeah, and uh, we're back here. And we decided to talk about it. You know what we haven't done in a really long time? Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. <laughs> I'm Dion Baya. And I'm Jay Blake. And we're winding down the 2017 season. Yeah. We, we got maybe one more left before the uh, closeout of the year. And we snuck this one in. Sl- slipped it in. Slipped it right in, in between the cracks. We wedged open the bookcase, and we shoved one more book in there really tight. That was a tight, tight squeeze. <laughs> and accidentally ruined the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, no. And you try to, you pull the other two out, and you try to put it in, and it just won't work. And you're like, how the hell did that? And yeah, Jesus. And you ruined everything. But we're here. Let's see. we got to get right down to basics because there's so much to cover. Full disclosure. Blake is not wearing any clothes. He's so excited for this episode. This may be the most excited I've so ever seen Blake. <laughs> so worked out. Since I've met him. Um, he has an erection, which is odd as well, but it's just because of the excitement. That's all. It's, he's just, that and I forgot to take a piss before we started. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not going now. I'm going to hold it. 
taking a movie theater. You know, I to hold it for three hours. Yeah, the movie's so good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just hold it. I don't care. Feel urgency through the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. I want to have my bladder <laughs> pulsating. Keep, keep me on my. Yeah, chest. I want to be throbbing. I can feel it every heartbeat. Boom, 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 boom. This is disgusting. Sorry, 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 sorry. 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 We digress. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> we do that quite a bit. But we're here. Um, we're here to talk about a little movie that maybe a lot of people haven't heard of. A little known. Uh, under the radar, um, slightly underappreciated. Yeah, 1977 classic. Yeah, uh, Star Wars. Yeah, we're not even gonna go with that New Hope bullshit. No, this it's is Star, Star Wars. <laughs> we watched Blake track down because he's got a lot of connections. We watched an old eight millimeter print of this son of a bitch, <laughs> an eight minute yeah. version. <laughs> so we're only doing the eight minute version. It's a really quick movie. Not a lot happens. It's a two-reeler. Yeah, it's a real two-reeler. It's like those, um, for people who were too young back in the day, before even video, you had this, the, you know, you can get that at home. They had a whole, what is that, a projector system? You get yeah, a projector. you get a projector and you pick up, you'd buy these prints at like Kmart. Yeah, and they were eight millimeters, so eight millimeters is actually pretty small. If you go to the theaters, well, they don't, they don't even show film on, film on film in theaters anymore, but that's 35 millimeter, which is probably the size of like, what, like a... Two inches by two inches, maybe. I don't even know if it's that big. Yeah, but it's pretty big, maybe. Comparison. Yeah, but then eight millimeters, very small, you know. And then, then you'd have a movie, but what the problem is, they'd have to just truncate the damn thing because you can't have four reels. The kid, the kid's learning how to be a projectionist, <laughs> <laughs> splicing them all together. Yeah, got a giant. I I used to work with a guy who uh, went to the same film school that Dion and I did, but he was a bit older than us. He graduated in the eighties, and he. That was his thing, was 8mm. You know, for, for us, it was like VHS, but like when he was a kid... Yeah, it's 8mm. It was all 8mm, and he shot 8mm, and he, and he said even when... Uh, if he, when he watches things like Star Wars or Aliens, yeah. or Alien, not, not the sequel... Now, like when he watches them, he know he can remember where all the cuts are because he watched those. Pretty, That's you know, amazing. Like, like he's got like that eight minute, ten minute, or whatever version in his head, so lodged in his brain that he can he knows where all the cuts are. I, I, there's I, every time we bring this up, there's always a movie that I thought was pretty good called uh, Running Scared, the new version, not the Gregory Himes. Uh, what's his name? Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal movie. No, there's one from a couple Paul years Walker. ago. The Paul Walker one. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a Alice in Wonderland. Like it's a it's a crime movie that like happens all in one night, and you know it's like they fall down a rabbit hole and all. But one of the bad guys in it talks about him being in Russia growing up, and he had a, a one of these little copies of a John Wayne movie called The Cowboys, and he watched the crap out of it, and it's all cut up. So growing up, he wanted to be like John Wayne and be a big cowboy, and it wasn't until he like left Russia, got to America, and watched the full version that he realizes that in The Cowboys, it's like one of the, maybe the only two or three movies that John Wayne dies in at the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, sorry. Bruce Dern shoots him in the back, and he's like, you know, he didn't, it, it was such a shocking thing to him that, like, you know, the, Bruce Dern, he doesn't say Bruce Dern, but he gets, you know, the, the dude gets killed in the back, you know. It's just, so it's, point is, like, these movies would be so cut up. You'd only, I don't even know what you can accomplish in eight minutes, but, you know, that's, a, that's almost like a <laughs> well, good editing assignment for, like, a film class. Yeah, you know, take yeah. your favorite movie. See, that would have been something cool to do. Take your favorite movie and cut it till you can't have it over eight minutes. And and you pick what you think is the best, you know, to make, have like a story arc. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then uh, let's see if it makes sense. Well, it's like, uh, I think with Raiders, we probably, when we did Raiders of the Lost Ark in September, and maybe when we did Black Hole a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I brought up 
when you'd have like the storybook with the record. Oh yeah, and like my Raiders one was like a forty-five. Oh yeah, yeah. So we're talking about like six minutes, six well, and a half minutes. Tops. Didn't they for for the for this this movie they issued that same size because I had the Return of the Jedi one. Yeah, I had the Return had of the, the Jedi forty five. Growing up, we had the full LP okay. version of this. Yeah, and to this day, like there's lines that are I don't know if they're like memorable to anybody else, but it's like if this is a counselor ship, then we're, because that was how the movie that was how the record opened, and I would listen to that record yeah. all the time. So so you know it better. So it was like a forty, I guess like a like a forty five minute. 37 minute version of Star Wars which is still record. you can maybe get some some stuff done that's yeah, that's yeah. only you getting a, you know you're cutting it to a just third just audio <laughs> yeah yeah it's true it's a radio play you know and speaking of the radio play we we happen to also listen to 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 bring a little of our Saturday night movie sleepover uh you know we we picked nest. an angle yeah the the Saturday night movie <laughs> sleepover nest to this we figured we'd also um uh, listen to the Star Wars audio drama, I think, as they call it, from 1981 or 1980 or so. 1981, I think. Yeah, the NPR, NPR did. Yeah, uh, through the local affiliate that was uh, part of the University of Southern Connecticut, George Lucas's alma mater. So we listened to that too, which I had had for years, but I never had California. the California. Did I say Connecticut? Connecticut. Oh, sorry, I'm from Connecticut, University of Cal- Southern California. Um, and that's a 13 episode. That's four plus hours long. So. <laughs> You get, you get they went a, the other way yeah, with it. <laughs> you get a lot in in that one, and that was actually, you know, after you you get through it all, that was actually really. I found that more interesting than than this movie, just be, probably because I'd never heard it before. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, we're big, we're such big radio enthusiasts. Well, when we get around, I have a story about my hearing that move, that radio play for yeah. the first time. But we'll circle. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll have time to circle back around. And so get that to was that. so that yeah, we brought that in too because there's a lot you think about if we're doing a movie that's how long is this movie clock in Star Wars? I don't know. Maybe an hour and a half, maybe something like that. Maybe two hours. Let's say it's something like that. You know, whatever the uh, running time is of um, of Star Wars, uh, 121 minutes. So just an, uh, two hours and one minute. So you have you add an extra two hours to that thing. So you have a lot of exposition that they. <laughs> Oh, jeez, I'm throwing my hands around. There's a lot of exposition that they throw in there, which ends up being really cool and really, uh, you know, you earn a lot. Yeah, there's stuff that's uh, from the deleted scenes that got cut out that I believe are also in the novelization. And the comic Um, book version as well. But you can also find some of those scenes, like, you know, in some special features or online and stuff. And then they completely... hanging out with his friends. Yeah, all his friends, Biggs and all that on on Tatooine. But then they also fabricated, like, three or four scenes. And some of them were actually pretty fucked up, in my opinion. I mean, as it, like... Like messed up, <laughs> like the uh, the mind rape. We'll get to that later. But it's like it's 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 total Spock going after Kim Cattrall in Star Trek Six. She yeah. doesn't know, you know. But anyway, I digress. So here we are. But if you recall, last year around this time, Saturday night movie sleepovers. Saturday night movie okay. sleepovers. We did Star Wars: The Holiday Special. Yes. Uh, I think an episode, an episode that I mean, I know I am, but I think both of us are particularly proud of. We are, <laughs> and we like to every time we bring that we we brought it up maybe last episode, or maybe the episode that's coming up. But we have two. <laughs> things. Oh, we might bring it up <laughs> yeah. in the future. <laughs> but we have two things we always bring up obligatorily, close enough. Yeah, that we always say that one. It's probably the longest discussion ever had. <laughs> at least recorded. Yes. <laughs> about Star Wars, the holiday special. That's one conversation. And then the second point we like to bring up is... It's probably the only 
time that where we're completely positive about it. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not making fun of it. We're not trashing it. We're not shitting on it. No, we're actually giving we're, it like a fair been, shake. We've embraced it. Yeah, the weirdness of it. And you know, I have to say too, it wasn't it wasn't hard for at least me. I wasn't like we were no, embracing no. hokiness. I mean, it is hokey, but I genuinely enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. I don't know if I so much enjoyed it as intended. And I certainly didn't enjoy it for being kitschy or like enjoying it because it's so bad it's good. No. I wouldn't even say I, I liked it for that reason. I liked it because it was just so weird. Yeah. It was like this <laughs> exploration into this pop cultural phenomenon in like the weirdest way possible. And it, and it was just was like this anomaly. And it stuff for me worked. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I love the B. Arthur song in it. I actually thought that was a really good like uh, kind of like polka, like, like you know, like uh, um, like ethnic song. I loved Art Carney, the original Landau Calrissian. Uh, Harvey Corman was really good in it. I, I had know, like a lot then of good... You had, like, the first 20 minutes are all in Wookiee. Yeah, the first 20 minutes are in Wookiee. And I, my record, it's not like it's even subtitled. <laughs> no, not at all. It's not at all subtitled. You have to just figure it all out. And then you have Grandpa having like a masturbating session yeah, he's, in he's, virtual he's, reality. It was just... In the living room. It is absolutely beautiful. It is, yeah, it is a, a wonderful thing. Thing. Uh, um, thing. Boba Fett makes his first appearance in cartoon great, form. The great cartoon. Yeah, that people, a lot of people forget. That's very... Uh, who we've always brought up since then. The, it's... Based off the French um, artist Mo- Mobius, that, that had a lot of elements of that, yeah. you know, Adam McQuarrie and Joe Johnston. So it's it, yeah, I mean, we uh, go back last year and listen to it because then also we have links there to actually watch the cleanest version we found, which is on YouTube. Yeah, and uh, you're gonna do yourself if you're a Star Wars fan. I think you're gonna you, you should go back and clear the slate. But check here, that bad boy. But out. here's the thing: that holiday special couldn't have existed had Star Wars. Uh, not taken the world by storm. Yeah. Not become the pop cultural phenomenon that it became. Now, it, bef- no, okay, no. Keep going. Finish your thought because I want to say something to you. I'm going to say something to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just, I think, to, I think for us to get to Star Wars here, I think we have to put everything in a perspective of, 1970, of the 1970s or what a movie like this coming out during that time uh like what that did and why i mean the reason why this movie is so successful and so iconic is kind of all about timing yeah see that was my question to you i was going to say this is like we're laying out a hypothesis like in our essay it's like <laughs> why you know at the end of the day why did this have staying power why did this hit the way it did these are all questions we're going to try to attempt to answer by the end of this little episode <laughs> of what, because if it came out a couple years before, if it came out a couple years later, if it came out um, maybe uh, with George Lucas's first cut with that first editor, yeah. if it had come out uh, with s- somebody else doing it or if another studio had greenlit it, I mean, you know, uh, if he didn't have ILM, if he just went with the special effects department, the, the, the really antiquated department that 20th Century Fox had. It's like all these elements. So it's like... It really is... It's puzzling. You know what I mean? You know, it really is, you know, for lack of a better term, like a perfect storm of yeah. things came together. This is lightning in a bottle. Yeah, yeah. Literally. <laughs> uh, and We got that cork on it. <laughs> We've it's captured, stuck in it. Somehow Lucas captured it. And, uh, I, you know, I do have to say that... Um, 
doing our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode a couple of months ago yeah. in September, which was our, our third anniversary episode. Uh, and the way we approached that, which was talking, uh, reading the transcript of the script meetings and... Uh, between Lucas, it, Steven Spielberg, and maybe... Uh, was it Howard? Kasdan? Kasdan, the, the writer. <clears throat> it really kind of gave me... I'm not going to say a newfound respect, but it kind of reinforced and like reminded me of like how fucking awesome George Lucas was. Yeah, you brought that up in the in the Indiana Jones uh, our episode, like you're saying, because a lot of people blow him off, and a lot of people like you know he did American Graffiti, THX, he did Star Wars, and then especially us going to film school and yeah, stuff, yeah. he's get a lot of crap. Like he hasn't made a good movie since, and like yeah. look at the prequels suck, and he's a he's a you know he had one hit, and you know there's there's even arguments on the internet about this, but. Going back to the Indiana Jones episode we did, we discussed where you got to kind of like look at it like, and particularly highlighted in our Indiana Jones episode was us looking at the transcripts of that conversation between uh, Kasdan, uh, Spielberg. Spielberg, and Lucas. You can really see Lucas is like the driving force of the ideas, man. You know, and you know, you got to, we start, we started to realize like, you know, pe- you should give him a little more credit than he gets yeah. because he's really, uh, he's got some, you know. He's a smart guy, and the thing that, and you know, we're not going to rehash the whole discussion. But the go thing, listen to it. But the thing that I, the big takeaway for me from reading that thing, and we talk about it in that episode, is that what which I see as a very strong positive quality and and intelligence. Which he's, he's very quick to edit himself. And what I mean by that is, he talks, he talks, he talks. He has all these ideas, but then he's quick to say like, "But maybe that's too much." He's he's all about like killing his darlings. It's, yeah. He's not holding on to things. That's and, I, a, and that's a term that you get from film school or writing, where it's like you may have the you know, the the, the, the lack of a better term, your baby, and you could have something that you find so de- near and dear in your script or your book or whatever you're yeah. writing. But like then, there's a scene that you just love. It's the scene. It's the you wrote this whole book because you wanted to write that scene. Yeah, that was the inspiration. But then the teacher, <laughs> filmatically or even maybe just the arc, it's not working, and that's kind of like what they tell you you have to do when you're writing a script, a movie, a book. It's just, hey, you know, you may have to kill your baby, you kill your darling to make this work better. And a lot of people, it's hard for people to, some people won't do that. Like, I can't, you know, you have so much committed to it. And he's one of these people who were, we've seems, yeah, you know, at least in that discussion, he has all these ideas of what the character of Indiana Jones should be and, and all this stuff. And then the minute he lays it all out, it's like you can, you can see the, you can see like the cogs turning, you know, you can see his brain working as he's like stream of consciousness, you know, discussing what he thinks this should be. And then being like, but ultimately maybe this is too much stuff for a movie. We might have to streamline this. He's very quick to say like, this is what I'd love it to be, but that might not work. Yeah. And I think it takes that kind of mind to pull something like this off. And I even, I think I said in that episode that like, I, you know, for always, I've kind of felt like Spielberg, I'm not Spielberg, that Lucas like sold his soul to the devil for Star Wars. He went down to the crossroads and (laughs) cause it's like, it's such a, you take a guy. Oh, there's so many places, so many avenues to go to. Um, We're going to jump right in because for lack of a better term. We'll come back to Lucas. Okay. Let's talk about the 70s. Okay. And why a movie like this could strike such a huge chord. And it's the same way we discussed this with Rocky, too. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think they're both playing on the same uh, 
plain as to like what why they could be successful in this time uh 1970 is especially in america is kind of a, a uh the 1970s not not just the year it's kind of like a, a period of like political upheaval and social unrest america's become very cynical because we've had the in the vietnam war and we've had watergate and so there's uh, just it's a pretty dark time and in the most for the most part it's reflected in cinema at the time yeah you had the late 60s with like the flower power movement everybody thought there was going to be this bright new beginning and then uh you know it's almost like they say ultimate or the isle white festival like that just kills it where it's just like 70s hits and it's just like oh no it's not going to be this new revolution that we thought it was just going to be it's going to be much worse and you have this you know the, the people are uh, start questioning their 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 the government and like you know they don't like the, the direction stuff's going. Hence, you have with the Nixon administration and what happens in Watergate and his resignation, and then Vietnam, how that bad that goes, and we get out of that, and then you get into the seventies, and it's just it's an era of everything is starting to just kind of rot and fall apart. Um, you know, you have terrible inflation in the seventies with prices are going up. People don't, and then also then you hit cinema at the time. And cinema is starting to reflect that with yeah. the movies and the culture and the kind of this consciously awareness of because all these guys are coming out of uh, all these young filmmakers are coming out of the sixties where yeah. they've seen you know uh, the riots like Detroit riots in nineteen sixty seven and then there's all these riots through the sixties and seventies like one hundred and fifty nine riots yeah. in America through like those two decades Martin Luther King gets killed in sixty eight. Yep. Uh, Robert Kennedy gets killed in 68, so the yeah. late 60s. And then at the same time, I think stuff that we don't even really think about is at the same time in the late 60s, 68, 69, we got the Zodiac Killer. Yep. You got the Manson murders in yeah. 69. Uh, Which seven- kind of, t- in a way, have a have a kind of a, a weird connection to this, the Manson uh, murders the, you know, and decision-making of, of plot here. Yeah, and it's just there's all this kind of really dark, gritty shit happened. We got 72's Watergate. Uh, Nixon resigns in 74. We got the oil crisis in 73. Uh, Which means for that is that people, there was there was like a kind of like an embargo in a sense where people, suddenly there was like a gasoline shortage in this country. So uh, it was f- for the first time people were like in line waiting to just get gas with their cars. And sometimes you'd have to wait for hours and it kind of got, and that was, you know, kind of the starting to fall of say the American automobile or, you know, yeah, that was... Yeah we've talked about before and like maybe the Christine cast where, you know, that's when people started to think about, you know, being fuel efficient with cars and economy and weight of a car and what it's designed by, you know? So all these things are playing into like, you know, the psyche at the time and New York city is, is is rotting and falling apart. And there's this yeah through the seventies. There's that big thing about like, uh, like it's gone back. It's got to go bankrupt. Yeah. And then then there was a New York post cover where uh, New York city's ask. I mean, they, they, they weren't paying the cops. They weren't paying the garbage men because they were running out of money. They had no money for nothing. So they asked Washington DC for a bailout and Ford says, no, that's not our problem. We have a whole country to deal with. So New York post puts a very iconic photo or uh, a line saying Ford tells New York city to go to hell. Yeah, Yeah. You know, and, and then during that mid seventies period, kind of leading just before Star Wars comes out, and then, uh, and then the same year that Star Wars comes out, we got Son of the Son of Sam killings. Yeah, and then you know just before that and even after that, we got David Ted Berkowitz. Bundy's killing and yeah in the six seventy four to seventy eight. And these people aren't even termed serial killers left yet; they're like thrill killers or whatever. And you have a lot of these. I mean, and then. You have this idea with, like, say, you said the Mansons or, or even the Zodiac. Zodiac is very scary, which we talk about in the Dirty Harry podcast, but that's, you know, he's just, you know, 
randomly murdering people and there's no rhyme or reason to it, sending letters almost like a uh, Jack the Ripper used to. Uh, Manson family, they're going over and they're just killing, they're writing pigs on the wall to start a race riot. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they kill Shannon Tate and they, they she was pregnant at the time with Roman Polanski's baby. So you have all this like scariness, like this could happen to you. Yeah. And it, it almost begets into like um, through the movies with, with the end of the studio system. The, you know, the studio execs are starting to retire in the late 60s, the people who invented this, the studio system. So they're looking to sell off these studios because the, the formula isn't really working anymore. So they're selling it off to these corporations. Yeah. And these corporations don't know how the hell to deal with. So they're, they're, they're dealing with the studio they're system selling, corporately. They're selling movies like they would sell Coca-Cola. Yeah, you know? they don't, they're, they're using product. marketing groups and stuff like that. So they don't, they, they're just using a division. So they don't really have their heart into what to do and then also in in religious terms you have like the new age movement of like uh, all the different like uh you know the it's about me through um you know meditation sure, transcendental sure. meditation which is honey krishna you know all, you know, all that stuff that we see that even in the invasion of the body that's what I say like when we finally get a, yeah. to our epic podcast about the, the 78 the- remake of invasion of body snatchers it's taking the idea of uh the, like the fear of communism and and uh and the witch hunts of the 50s and then kind of transposing it in the 70s but through this idea of this new age self-improvement yeah it's all very you're looking inward and only concerning really about yourself and improving yourself uh, mentally and physically and the core so it's all you have all this going so, on so how so what makes star wars leading up to 1977 we've now established kind of america is going through a lot of tough shit. There's a lot of dark things happening. There's, for the first time probably in at least modern American history, there's uh, mistrust about the government. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's just, there's a lot of negative energy happening. But at the same time, as Dion talks about, Hollywood is changing. Yeah. You know, he Dion's laid out that there's this, Passing of the guard, this changing of the guard for Hollywood. Now, in a way, and you lose the MPA code, or you you lose the Hayes code, but you they instill kind of the MPAA code, so that you have by the end of the '60s that you kind of no longer have to to to. There was a there was an unsaid Hayes code, which was like you know. Uh, whole other conversation that you could or couldn't do on screen, but that was kind of dropped in the late '60s. So to because you had that freedom, people go balls out, and you have like the Wild Bunch, which at the time was one of the most uh, physical cuts or edits in the movie that one had ever seen. It's so bloody. You have all these. Yeah. You have nudity. You have movies that are like people are having threesomes, or you have these socially conscious movies. And there's an answer to that in the cinema with the uh, you know with people are. Uh, the mistrust, you're having a lot of, like, you know, the vigilantism you see in sure. the 70s in, in these cinemas. Yeah, you know? well, you know, part of that, you know, things that are happening is because, uh, you know, this, the movie studios are now being run by corporations. They're thinking about the film's product. They're seeing that young directors can make movies on cheap, and they're making young young directors are making movies for young people. So that's a part of it. Cause this is, and it's marketable. They're realizing they can make money. Yeah. Because they're not doing it for, it's not, they're not super expensive and you're getting all this talent. This is the first wave of film school students. Yeah. Before the sixties, there really wasn't, you couldn't really go to school for you, it. Yeah. You had people going, but it wasn't really. So in the sixties, you have coming out of film school, you have, uh, Lucas, 
you have Coppola, you have uh, like the Palma, Palma, Jim Morrison, <laughs> Jim Morrison's coming out. You have uh, uh, Scorsese, Scorsese's coming out on the East Coast. You have all this stuff coming out, and then like Spielberg, and then in the early seventies, you got like Carpenter as part of that wave, and so you got these young people with. Uh, a new slant on the way to tell stories. People that grew up on the studio films, but wanting to tell stories in a different way, a little bit edgier. And you have a studio, a new studio system that's willing to let them do that. Yeah. And then at the same time, you have this arc of more common, uh, you know, of Hollywood movies that are embracing the anti-hero, like you said, with Dirty Harry, uh, Paul Kersey, Death Wish. You have all the kind of, the, and you then know, you have, which is an answer to what people are seeing. They're, they're getting fed up in society. And seeing, Wayne Freakin makes French Connection, yeah, and, and we just talked about Sorcerer. So you have all these people who are, they're upset. So you're losing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into the early 60s. You've had you've had these family friendly fair films where you'd have like pirate movies, you'd have swashbucklers, you'd have. Uh, sword and sandal epics. You'd have uh, westerns. All these fair for maybe kids growing up they can watch. But then yeah. when you hit the the seventies, the late sixties, certainly the kind yeah. of studio studio musical. I mean, Disney's still kind of doing it. Sure. I mean, it's not to say that there isn't like escapism. A market for it. Yeah. But a lot of them are falling flat. Like they're, the, the the studio system's still trying to crank out. I mean, I we don't have stati- statistics in front of us, but it's funny to think like I don't know, like a, a Doctor Doolittle's coming out like against like say like a Easy Rider. You know, it's like it's so. I think it, yeah, but I think it's also important to note that this late sixties, the sixties into the seventies is also. I mean, look, like Deanne said, we don't have statistics in front of us, but it's probably because of the baby boom post World War Two. Yeah. It's probably the first time in American history where, like, young adults and teenagers are like outnumbering. <laughs> you know, it's the that's one of the reasons why the, the the British invasion and the Beatles were so big is because there were so many teenagers, and as, more teenagers than ever before, <laughs> and as well as they don't even realize that they that they are the best off the, the, a product that has ever been out of America. You know, they, they, they're the first ones who were able to go to college. They don't have to necessarily, you know, I mean, you take Vietnam out of it, but they don't have to, there's, there, you know, there's, there's a war, you know, they have a lot more freedom where they don't have to like say in the dust bowl or in the depression, have to worry yeah. about starving to death or, you know, or just, you know, staying, you know, there's a lot of like the, the fifties the prosperity of that time where, you know, there, so a lot of, uh, you see in the late sixties when, when these teenagers are becoming, of age, what do they want to do? They want to, re- you know, it's almost like you want to kind of rebel and they look at their parents and, you know, you see all, th- and that goes to even what their parents, all the parents interested likes. They're like, F that, that's square. You know, that's, so they start to rebel against everything their parents, you know, even to like the kind of comedy or the kind of movies they like. So, and then with all these other things happening with the Vietnam War and all that, you have this kind of uh, new flux of these movies that are like dark and gritty and, uh, realistic and uh, almost like um, almost document documentarian yeah. style. So well, my yeah, point it, is like there's a really large audience of young people, which I think is a very important thing to keep in mind when we talk about the film school generation of filmmakers. They're young people making movies for young people. Yeah, <laughs> and there's such a large audience of young people at that point 
that, they're not that they're profitable. Yeah. You and, know, and, that they can make a lot of money. And they can tell whatever story they want. They don't have a studio system telling them, like, no, you can't put nudity in the film. You yeah, can't yeah. have swearing. You can't have a bad guy who's going to be bad at the end. You have to, you know, he should have his comeuppance or right the wrong. You know what I mean? So, they're I mean, able to tell whatever no, they want. There's, it's no coincidence that we're having, you know, Dirty Harry, Death Wish, at the same time as we're having... Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And, uh, you know, later Halloween, you know, Last House on the Left. I mean, all of this is in response to what's going on. Art is not uh, ever yeah. kind of in a capsule by itself. It's always reacting to what's happening. And you have these political movies like Easy Rider or uh, Five Easy Pieces, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, All the President's Men, all these social conscious you know these almost these experiments of of you know uh, you know almost like you know pointing the finger at government or the big brother or the man and saying you know and almost like even within the movie it's about a rebellion you yeah. know telling the story about you know this is what's happening so people embrace this and then in the seventies when you get into the mid seventies with all this and you know uh, people the entertainment is kind of a different it's a different whole different landscape for people like you know there's not really you know, sci-fi isn't really doing well. I mean, you have the Planet of the Apes films that are doing pretty good. You have um, Logan's Run's huge at the time yeah. in like 75, 76. But we're talking about like, and you know, and we had in the 60s, we had 2001. Yeah, 68. <clears throat> so we're talking about like science fiction at the time. Lost in Space is on television, you know. At the midst of all this gritty, uh, more realistic, even when we did Slapshot, we yeah. talked about how like Slapshot, even though it's a comedy, which came out the same year as Star Wars, yeah. even though it's a comedy, it's pretty gritty. I mean, it's yeah, dealing yeah. with like the Rust Belt and the people <laughs> the, dying, the yeah. Rust Belt and uh, industry closing and even the quality of it and the lives they're leading is pretty raw. Yeah. And so like, even comedies are that way. But even at, the, at that same time when you have bigger, like more Hollywood based cinema, where we're talking about genre filmmaking, uh, aside from the horror stuff that's happening, because even that for the most part, you have sure you have the exorcist. Yeah. But for, and then the Omen, and just, bef- and then in the late sixties, you have Rosemary's baby, but the most, most of the horror we think about in that time period is pretty independent and kind of low budget. But, uh, the other kinds of genre like you're talking about the science fiction, um, like Deer Hunter, you have Apocalypse Now, all these kind of like really, you know. But the science fiction is, uh, even for the most part, is pretty... uh, It's like apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, it's all very like like Soylent Green or Omega Man. Yeah, it's very like dystopian and... but they're not even that popular. I mean, 2001 made a boatload of money. Yeah. But for the most part... Science fiction movies, even the ones that did well, were not making, you know, a, a lot of money for a for a, sci- a hit in a science fiction other than 2001 in that time period. It's like 12 to 13 million dollars yeah. in prior, success. And prior know? to like the disaster films, Irwin Allen, this director, he in the 60s is doing uh, TV shows like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space, which start off serious but people can argue by the end of their runs respectfully they kind of get campy and they get hokey so that plays into like this idea that like sci-fi is kind of this camp you know i mean you have silent running which is really a a, a good hit yeah uh and you have um uh like we said logan's run or you have this other show space 1999 but for the most part 
it's kind of you know there's the sci-fi isn't very popular and what is popular <laughs> of it is this po- post-apocalyptic cinema and then along with that Irwin allen goes into yeah, this other yeah, huge, like soil and green yeah and stuff like that it, it, but then like you're saying where, where you're kind of leading is that Okay, in genre filmmaking, in genre cinema at that time, we have this aspect of science fiction. But then the real, blo- you know, blockbusters is a weird term to use because really Exorcist and Jaws is what we're talking about. And then, of course, Star Wars with the blockbuster. But the real successful other kind of genre pictures at that time are the disaster films. Yeah, and those are huge at the time. And I mean, that's... And could you get more bleak? Yeah, or morbid <laughs> about that. I mean, you have, you know, um, you have uh, Side Adventure, Tower Inferno, Inferno, which we did on the show several years ago. Yeah, we check did out that. that episode. That was really fun. You have Earthquake, you have the Airplane, uh, not the spoof, because that spoof spoofs this, but Airplane 77, and all these Air, different... And Airport. Air, that's what I'm saying, I'm sorry. Airports yeah. are the ones I'm talking about. And, you know, and then there's, like, there's at least, there's a whole cottage industry of these movies that disaster films yeah the, that which, are chief by Irwin Allen which we get into a discussion of like are these really horror films yeah which I think is a in, very in, interesting... the, in the tooth in the t- uh, towering inferno podcast we did yeah so and it'll I... be another fun to revisit that another time because there's so many good ones where you have a and that's that becomes the new modern uh, you know, in the fifties, you had the big biblical sword and sandal epics with like everybody in the phone book in it. Th- yeah. That's what happens in the seventies. These movies where you have forty people are in it. Like you know, it's like the whole movie is just them introducing Fred Astaire, Clark Gable, John, Sean. Pe- you know, everybody you know is in these things, and these are the things making money. So, and then on television, you have like Kojak. You have these. You have the the uh, emergency. You have the the police. You're getting out of the police procedural dragnet era into the. You know the cop or the crime drama. Yeah, you know the streets of San Francisco or you know Starsky and Hutch, Mannix. You have all these shows where you know where you're dealing with like you know real street level crime and stuff like that. So it's it's so real. There's like no kind of like that's what a kid you when you're growing up. You're either you you have you 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 have a like a towering inferno or an earthquake playset, or <laughs> yeah, you have like yeah. Kojak his car. You know what I mean? So these are the things you're playing with, and there's not really. I mean, you still play with like cops and robbers and stuff, or like cowboys and Indians. But I mean, we start to get what we've discussed several times on the show, which we're not <clears> going <throat> to go into now. But we start to have when we talked about it with Greece, is we also start to have this nostalgic look back. The young people are now nostalgically looking back to their childhood the way we do. Yeah. But their childhood was like in the fifties. Yeah. So you get those. So we start to have happy days. Yeah. And and Greece and stuff like that, and that's where you know and, and Lucas makes American Graffiti. Yeah. Kind of through that uh, realm of nostalgia. But I guess the, our point is that the world is is a pretty bleak place at that point, at least in, especially in the minds of the young people. Cinema is reflecting that, even in its popcorn cinema of disaster films. So everything is pretty dark. And then there's one other thing, too, that they're, they're trying to recycle... Um Hollywood doesn't know what to do to make a hit, so they're recycling all the old tropes that they think maybe maybe still working. So you still have them trying to push out the the musical, and then you have this weird thing which plays into our Hollywood, our Star Wars holiday specials that they're still trying to reinvent the variety show. So you have like what is it the. Uh, uh, Donny Osmond, you have them. You have Sonny and Cher. They have a variety show. You have um, what's Calbert that show still yeah. probably going on? You have all point. these weird shows in the seventies where they're like, you know, we'll make a variety show out of it, which is kind of like a forgotten. Maybe yeah. it's starting to come back a little bit now, but so you know, at the time you have this really polarizing, like you know, Bob Hope and Jack Benny are still putting out a 
a holiday or a, a variety show once a year. So you have like, I'd say two separate camps of people like the older people, the parents and the grandparents who clearly like that cinema. And then you have yeah, the students. Watching like Hee Haw. Yeah, you know, they're trying to figure <laughs> out. the Lawrence Welk show. Yeah, yeah, they're well, you know, and I love Lawrence Welk with his bubbles. And, but, and then you have them trying to market that towards young people with the Sonny and Cher show, or you have like the Dick Van Dyke has a variety show, all these variety shows. Yeah. So they don't really know where to go. You so know? in the midst of all this, in 1976, we get Rocky. Yeah. Rocky, still gritty, a gritty real, uh, dealing with the gritty realism of the time, but it's an uplifting story. You know, we're talking about this is the same year Taxi Driver comes out in 1976. So, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, when we talked about Rocky a couple years ago, we did a special Rocky episode for a New Year's episode. Uh, we talk all about how Rocky's kind of like this perfect storm of thing. The music comes together, the cast comes together. We got this kid Stallone who's trying to make it and he makes the movie and um this uplifting story of uh of kind of hope and stuff that people uh, can identify with becomes such an enormous success because it's a beacon of light in this midst of darkness yes and following year we get star wars and i don't think it's there's any accident that those two films back to back come out and manage to in a lot of ways like eclipse every other piece of other than maybe jaws and possibly the exorcist but especially jaws other than like which is escapism even though it's a horror film yeah it's pretty dark it is not it's out on the beach it's on the ocean yeah you know it's a very different kind of film even though it's kind of dark in that it's a horror movie and it knocks out and those it, and it's a thriller it knocks out those spectacles those urban allens i mean they do them into like the eight eighty eighty one, but yeah. the when star wars hits it resets everything you know and it and the other thing that's happening is because of this influx of more realistic, quote unquote, realistic cinema, the things like the Mean Streets and you know, uh, and you know the, the French Connections and the, the all Seven these, Ups, the Dirty Harrys, you know, the, all, yeah. The studios and the, and now that the studios are not running on this like. Uh, kind of like the, the what's the, the Ford. Ford Coppola, Apocalypse K- now. No, no, uh, Godfather, Henry Ford. Henry Ford. He has a car. The, 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 oh, the, oh, the assembly line. The assembly line. Assembly Eli line. <laughs> the assembly line type cinema where you're dishing out like serials and and you know films every day, and, and you got you got your own orchestra and everything. Without that. Special effects are kind of going by the wayside. Yeah. There's no real special effects house yet. I mean, the stu- the special effects departments of the studios are are not uh, no because they're current. They're, they're not contemporary. Especially, I mean, at the time when with the if they're sure doing, you with, have special effects, you have the disaster. Spe- films yeah, you have these stuff. spectacles, but all they're doing is like you know they're doing matte paintings and they're doing like miniature. They're nothing. It's all kind of. And a lot a of certain, it is, a lot of it's still very impressive, yeah, but it's but it's certainly a, it, it curtails to a certain aspect of what these movies kind of need, you know. Or even there is a kind of a semi interest in sci fi in the middle seventies, where like you have the six million dollar man on television. We said Logan's Run already, uh, Star Trek. They're kind of toying with an idea, maybe coming back with a TV show. There's a very big like a second TV show, yeah, a which revitalization is what eventually becomes the motion picture because of this. Um, 
Star Wars, but you have like the very famous New York Comic Con in '76, the Star Wars Star Trek, which is really big. Disney's at the time developing uh, Space Probe One, which w- turns into the black hole, but they're looking at it as being a disaster film in space at the time. Yeah. You know, so you know what you're saying is there wasn't. For what we're looking for, I mean, like in the fu- sci-fi at the time is very just clean, you know, like Logan's Run. It's like all like you know, uh, you know, very pretty and and you know, yeah. and flight. You get like you, know. you get a little bit of a, and I don't remember what like year Soylent Green comes out. I think that's seventy two, three, four. But you know, you get like you either get like a very clean, like you're saying, Logan's Run, which is very Star, Apoc- you know, uh, 2001, yeah, which is very, Star Trek. You know, the way Star Trek was. Everything's kind of clean and pristine. Or you get, like, the science fiction of something like Omega Man. Planet of the Apes. Or, or... Planet of the Apes, where it's like, uh, or Soylent Green, where it's it's not clean, but it's... Post-apocalyptic. It's, yeah, and it's more contemporary. Yeah. You know, it's it's not that far off. <laughs> you know, when you look at, when you watch something like Soil and Green, it's not that, you know, they didn't, it's not futuristic. No. They I just, mean, they just found great locations to shoot in and like, you know, but like, with the Logan's Run, yeah, you have guys like, you know, they're all like, it's all very like, so nice for outfits the, and but stuff. For the, so for the most part, the idea of doing special effects is limited. Also because you're dealing with special effects guys that have been in the business for a while and so they're not necessarily thinking outside the box they're like even up to retirement seeing maybe. the potential of what can happen yeah and a lot of you haven't you're, you we're now you haven't started to have like this influx of these young guys that are going to come in you know you you have uh you know like the rick bakers and the and the rob boutines yeah. with the makeup effects and dick and smith's the- kind of there and you have you know the like a ray harryhausen but a lot of but the sad thing is with the back in the day when you had a studio system the studio would everything would be done in house you'd have the actor director the musical department like blake was saying you'd have everything done and they're just you know it, it's like you're making the product under one under one roof and you don't have to outsource anything but then when these things start going away when these studio heads start retiring and Sign and you know selling off their stuff to corporations. A lot of these departments dissolve because they don't need it. If you're making just you know gritty cop movies on the street, you don't need a lavish special effects department. Or if you're making these disaster films, you may only need certain elements of your special effects department: matte painters or miniature makers, model makers. But you don't need everything. So a lot of these studios too, their departments are really just starting to fall by the wayside because there's no use for them. And you know, like a corporation will do, why put money into something you don't need? So they're, they're trimming as tightening the belt as much as they can. So there is certain elements that are lacking, and you know, it, and you can kind of see some of that in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a, a good example of the other way is like a, you know, uh, maybe you know, like a Westworld or a Logan's Run. Sure. You know, Logan's Run's very futuristic, but it's that kind of futuristic where everything's very like Star Trek, clean, yeah, and yeah. you know, everything's you know. So when you get into this with the Star Wars come 70 f- mid 70s it's it's certainly going to be an epic uh property to try to develop so, running parallel to all this of the the, <laughs> the film system what's happening in America at the time we're taught we brought up the film school generation but one sp- very specific film student happening at this time going on at this time is George Lucas yes so he's again, like we, like I said, art is never kind of you know in a bubble. It's it's you know by itself. Artists are reflective. Uh, they're re- through. They're expressing through their art what's happening, whether it's their own interest through the lens of the time. Uh, 
So we have this young filmmaker, George Lucas, grew up in Modesto, California. Northern he California. He was uh, I, I probably what was pretty typical of the 50s and into the 60s still. You have... Like right uh, out of the for, Andy Griffith show. For a sh- but for a teenager at that point, you probably you have a guy who's loves cars yeah, and cowboys speed and, and races and all that all that but stuff but he's so. all about you know he's a he's a bit of a gearhead he's all about speed and cars and stuff and and that's what eventually american graffiti is kind of about like that part of his childhood um while in junior college he, he uh he became very into uh he was in northern california so he's around san francisco and stuff so he got very into like the independent and avant-garde cinema that's happening in uh, San Francisco at that point. So we're talking like mid sixties. He starts to get involved with like this kind of film collective up there. That's all about kind of showing independent cinema avant-garde. So, uh, taking a kid who grew up on, you know, uh, Tatooine, <laughs> nobody, nobody, in Modesto, like a, he, in a he, suburban kind yeah, of town, up in a north. suburban thing, you know, loving, uh, studio system, uh, Movies, regular Hollywood movies, uh, loving the genre pictures of like you know serials and and uh, you know all that stuff, you know all the cowboy, the westerns, the pirates, all the kind of. But you have this kid who's now exposed to this whole different kind of cinema, which is very and you know to me the most. And I'm sure we talk about it because we get really in. Dion and I get very into our film school days when we talk about Reservoir Dogs in our Reservoir Dogs episode in the spring, early summer. I don't remember when we it sounds did about it. right this year. Uh, there's something about that. There's something to it. When you're at the right age and seeing being exposed to new things, stuff you would never, you might not have ever seen going in purpose, you know, you go into classes and they sit you down to see, you know, foreign films. But there's, there's something about like the late teens, early twenties, uh, for, at least for me. I mean, I can only, I can't talk for everybody. I would imagine that it's somewhat similar for everybody. I mean, they're, it's their, their formative years. Sometimes on Twitter, when you know, I talk to people that are younger than me, and I, you know, you talk to even somebody as young as nineteen, and they're in the movies, and I, and I told, and I told somebody once, I was like, I'm kind of jealous because the movies that you discover and fall in love with right now are going to be the movies that you love for the rest of your life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're going to shape who you are. Music, movies, all that stuff. Uh, so Lucas, at this time, is being exposed to this kind of weird avant-garde independent cinema and he transfers from junior college to usc uh, university of southern california and while there he is still kind of you know uh experimenting with like this bit of this avant-garde stuff and and he eventually makes um electronic labyrinth thx 1138 for eb which was supposed to be like a five minute film assignment so you're and he makes a 20 minute kind yeah. of science fiction <laughs> and he like blows the doors off like yeah the whole area yeah it, and uh it just goes to show that again like he's he's a rebel you know he's 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 working outside of the constraints that are being pushed on him budget uh time constraints yeah every kind of thing and for him to make a movie that's that forward thinking, and it goes to the archetype we're talking about, the 60s, science-fi, that post-apocalyptic or the almost the Orwellian 
kind of 1984-ish kind of an idea of a world like that. You know, him to do a movie, you know, 20 minutes long, and that certainly gets his professor's kind of interest. Like, wow, this guy can, you know, he kind of has a handle of uh, a master of the, uh, you know. <laughs> well, he's got potential, yeah. for sure. I mean, the, the film. And he's a smart cookie, too, you know. He's, he's, they say he's an introvert, you know what I mean? He's, you know, but he's also very, you know, he's, he's highly intelligent. And I think part of that, I think part of what eventually becomes a very important part of uh, Lucas's filmmaking which is you know later we're when we get the we're approaching talking about star wars the way to handle this stuff i think goes back to that his he his mind is working in a very mechanical way because of his love for machinery and cars and stuff so i think he's also not only artistically you know kind of impressive but probably thinking in a lot of in a problem solving way and and understanding the mechanics of filmmaking the machinery of the camera the how to do special effects you know building things and so uh thx 1138 uh woods first uh prize 1967 68 national student film festival um he gets a student scholarship uh through warner brothers and was and through warner brothers was able to observe the making of a movie he chooses to be like, you know, kind of an intern apprentice thing through this, through this prize to kind of shadow uh, Francis Coppola on Finian's rainbow. And that's how he meets Coppola who Coppola was a bit older than, uh, you know, Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese. But so, and the California, he graduated I, the mid-64, he's Jim Morrison's year. So 64, and I think 65. he's from US, UCLA. Yeah, UCLA. But, he's kind of the example for a lot of these young film guys of like, cause he's now making real movies. Yeah. You know, he's getting made, paid. He's made dementia 13 and, and he's moving on to, you know, like actual films. I mean, he's kind of like the success story. You yeah. know, he's kind of famous in the, in, in, in California student, you know, young filmmaking thing. It's like, it's a guy who's, who's doing it. So he gets, t- so Lucas kind of shadows Coppola meets Coppola. And then eventually Coppola, uh, and Lucas and a group of other people kind of, uh, form the company American Zoetrope, which its goal is to liberate cinema from the studio system. This is like 69. Altogether. So they form a, this collective, this business company up in towards Northern California out of LA to get away from kind of the, the, what would get sort of the norm of filmmaking. And the first (laughs) film they decide to make under this banner is the feature length version of, of THX 1138, uh, where Lucas now takes this short film expanded to a full feature of this kind of very, uh, outside the norm for the time science fiction film and it does not do well yeah it, it they they completely reshoot it so they don't take anything from it. i don't think his original uh, student film they cast uh donald pleasance uh, robert duvall in it uh robert duvall i don't think is huge at the time he's still like just a like a working actor and um pleasance is you know he's, he's a pretty solid person and uh i personally love it but yeah it he has a lot of they have a lot of problems with it 
uh, both commercially when it comes out yeah. critically, and then they had some. He had some issues with the studio while he was doing because it. because Zoetrope's not. I mean, they're not. They're, they're they're a production company, but they're not a studio. So they they need to work with a studio to get it to to raise the funding and then to get it distributed. Uh, That's always the problem. At the end of the day, you can have whatever you movie you want, but unless you're not independently wealthy, you always have to approach a studio to get the money or the distribution. And this is where the failings are because then the studio is like, well, this is our money. We want to be able to have, you know, X, Y, Z about what it, and then, you know, so this is where all the conflict comes in between filmmaker or artist and uh, the bank and the moneymaker that being the studio. And Lucas so jaded by this experience. And also it's a completely different film from Star Wars. It is more of yeah, the, yeah. like the dystopian world of robots taking over slaves and this whole other, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's what we just laid out. Uh, 20 minutes ago it's that kind of an idea of a Lucas is not at that point a commercial filmmaker yeah he doesn't have interest in commercial filmmaking in a lot of ways he wants to be a documentary uh, documentary filmmaker but you know he's kind of being sidetracked by doing certain projects eventually he even wants to do he even is the first one slated he's going to do apocalypse now eventually yeah a documentary but, style but like, as a documentary handheld style like uh, orson wells wanted to do like 30 years before yeah and so lucas kind of jaded by this process of thx 1138 and working with the studio and stuff he decides to go off on his own and he forms lucasfilm limited and but still he needs to work with a studio but he forms his own company and it's through lucasfilm uh, limited, he makes American Graffiti, which he shot in 28 days for less than a million dollars. And uh, this is where he gets to nostalgically look back. You know, we talk about, we talk about this in Greece. We talk about when we, t- <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when we talk, when we talked about uh, on our George Romero tribute episode, we talked about Creepshow. Uh, we talk about the thing and the blob, this idea of now remaking 50s science yeah. fiction horror movies. I think we talk about even with Monster Squad, where they're, you're kind of like, yeah, you're kind of idealist. Monster Squad and especially uh, Night of the Creeps. Yeah, where, where you're kind of like looking back with like kind of like a like a soft lens or like you know, yeah. kind of like a loving loving like a like a like a love letter to your childhood. You know, so he makes American Graffiti and kind of a love letter to drag racing, and he, he and... gets that through because he went he took I think THX to Con. And he maybe United Artists gave him a two-picture deal, which is then he gets American Graffiti, and the second one I guess may end up trying to be Star, yeah. Star Trek, Star Wars. <laughs> but he makes this American Graffiti because I think also it's like a dare, isn't it? Like kind of like Coppola's like I don't think you could make something like this, make a comedy, yeah, like yeah. a teenage angst comedy. And he's like, I think I can. No, you can't. I think I can. <laughs> so he goes and he goes and he makes, and it's kind of like an homage to his growing up in a Northern California small town in the. In the early 60s, where it's about drag racing cars, uh, you know, milk hamburger stands, women on roller skate, you know, all that kind of. And honestly, you know, when we we're going to transition into Star Wars, but there's actually there's a lot of similarities in terms of the storytelling and stuff and what it's about. Uh, But but American Feet ends up becoming a big success. Yeah. And the minute you have a big especially overseas, too, it's huge internationally as well. And the minute you have a big success, uh, probably in most businesses, but especially in Hollywood, it opens doors. You're allowed to do things that you weren't allowed to do the day before. (laughs) Yeah. Bastards. And so literally the day before. (laughs) So all of a sudden, uh, this idea of doing a this movie that he's been working on in his spare time. 
that you know it's been like his little pet project is writing a Flash Gordon Buck Rogers style uh Serial, yeah, or even doing taking getting the rights to like a Flash Gordon doing a film, uh, you know, uh, yeah. screen version of it, you know, because it, it growing up in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you'd when you go to the movies, you'd have I think we've talked about this in Delirium, you'd not yeah. only see your feature film, but you'd see like a uh, included would be like a newsreel of what's happening, you'd have a cartoon, you'd have maybe a comedy like a Three Stooges, and you'd have you know a Warner Brothers cartoon, and then you'd also have maybe a serial. So you yeah, have like, like a Saturday a, matinee, you yeah, know, for the kids, you have the super they did Superman and Batman back in the day, they did Superman and Batman, Tarzan, you had uh, you know, uh, all tons of wet Zorro, tons of any kind of Which, genre you can think of, where like. You would go every week. It was like your television well, show, and that was yeah, because this is and they were continuations. To, yeah, it's basically prior to television, uh, and this is what television took off and took that idea, and then that became like an episodic t- show. But then that was another way to get the, especially the children, to come back next week. You know, will the you know hero make it out? We'll come back next week to find out. So that would get the kids like yeah. you know, very much the way like Batman ends. Yeah, you like, know, will the, 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 yeah, Batman sixty six out of the yeah, and that would k- get grab kids' attentions, and they would sa- save that dime or however much yeah. it costs back next in our week. Day, we go to the movies for a nickel, yeah, and or a quarter, spend there all day, yeah. So that would get kids back. So you, when you have a healthy uh, dose of that growing up, you know, you kind of end up having this, you know, this loving memory of it. So yeah. when he gets to the, this period, he's like, you know, I loved those cereals, yeah. which we talk about cereals in the in the uh, Rocketeer podcast, certainly, and probably Batman Raiders as well. Lost Raiders of Lost Ark, certainly. Because it's an extension of that, of yeah. his fascination with that. With these cereals. And we've, I think we lay it out pretty well in Batman and maybe Rocketeer as well as Raiders, our podcast. But it's... Basically, where we are as audiences now is all because of well, these serials. Well, that's the interesting you know. thing when doing the show and looking back on looking back on the movies we're nostalgic about and discussing them in depth the way we do. Is you start to realize that like those movies, so many of these movies are made that we love, hold near and dear to us. Uh, us being Blake and I, but in the collective us, yeah, yeah, our listeners, you know, our you, everyone who's listening, to yeah. this show. not everyone, but I would imagine, and 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 many of you have taken the time to contact us and, and express this, which is like this is like you know we're celebrating nostalgia, yeah, uh, cinematic nostalgia. And so were they, and, and that's yeah. like the amazing thing. These films we're celebrating are the or are, are all works that are just in almost themselves. homaging these or paying yeah. tribute to all these early works of whatever they be, whatever the serial may be, you know, and that's that's amazing on its on its own feet, you know. So Lucas, even while he's making American Graffiti, starts writing this series, like Star Space. Space adventure, opera, like a like a space western fantasy a, adventure, space fantasy film, a space opera, space western in like seventy two or seventy three. They're, they're talking about him doing this, and what he decides to do is well, he tries to get the rights to Flash Gordon, right? And then that doesn't work at all. Yeah, there's a couple of stories like that. You know, that's uh, they say that that's why Raimi made Darkman because he wanted to make the Shadow, but he yeah. couldn't get the rights to make the Shadow, so he made Darkman. And, and, and we talk a lot about that probably in Rocketeer, Batman, or the. Yeah. You know, and then he starts trying to develop. And so then he he has the idea of just, well, I'll make it on my own. And he goes back and starts reading Edgar Rice Burroughs, who did Tarzan. He goes and starts reading um, uh, Edwin Arnold, who did Gulliver on Mars, John 
Carter on Mars is Edgar Rice Burroughs as well. He start, um, Alex Raymond, who is Flash Gordon. He's just reading all, basically what you and I do is when, yeah, we, yeah. when we write a story, you just start reading all the stuff you like, watching and digesting it all, and then you, then you start coming up with like, these ideas. And at the same time, he's a, he's a stu- film student. Yeah. Uh, and so in film school, he's introduced for the first time to the films of like Akira Kurosawa, like yes. the Japanese samurai movies that Kurosawa made in the 50s and stuff. and uh, The supposed inventor of the action film, <laughs> Kurosawa. And so he's not just, he's now, his mind as a youth is, has, is now a sponge for everything that he's, you know, it's like a the hard drive. Everything's being fucking uploaded into, yeah. his, into his into his mind, and he starts working all these influences into this idea. And he writes, and he's and he reads a book by a guy named Joseph Campbell, who uh, is all about. Uh, he writes a book about the hero's journey, and it's the study of myths and world religion, but how what the similarities of all these things and 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 storytelling. And why they're so similar. Like, even if you look, I mean, we're not going to get into a, this an extension of, like, religion, but even if you look at the way the story of Jesus is told, very much parallels the way the story of Moses is told. And that's there's reasons for that. Yeah. You know, it's a way of making it, because what's familiar, people like what's familiar. So, Kia Campbell writes a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and it's this very impressive book. And he even gets in contact, Lucas gets in contact with him and, and While shows he's him writing the script. Early script. And what, 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 Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is about. It expresses the, it explores the connections of the myths of different cultures all over the world, and kind of pours over them and, and try to simplify the mofi- the motifs with the, with within all these different myths all over the world to try to figure out what the universal audience, you know, through Beowulf, the Odyssey, King Arthur, uh, you know, these traditional coming to age stories with a hero, uh, the Iliad. What what all across the world, the similarities between all these different things that is a universal template of a story that we all can connect to. And that's what this Campbell's doing. So I guess um, Lucas finds this so profound, yeah. he contacts Campbell and they have this big discussion about it. Maybe he is part of USC at the time. I don't know if Campbell yeah, is a resident know. there or whatever. And Campbell, who is this philosopher, or I don't know what you'd call him, maybe like just a you know a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the proper word is. Uh, you know, he starts having this back and forth. And, th- and this is one of the reasons that you have this development of the religious aspect that plays a heavy influence in the script, you know, yeah. because he's Lucas starts looking for these common themes that he can interwove into his script that so that anybody uh, past language of any barriers, faith, yeah, that could, could can see similarities, can find, you know, their faith in the force. Yeah, you know, kind of. Uh, and so he starts building this script of this like site like an homage adventure to like these serials an homage to serials but an homage to kurosawa in a lot of ways and you know a, a, a study put into mo uh, into uh action of these theories by campbell about the about the hero and their journey and all this stuff and he starts putting all this together and kind of the stroke of genius, I think uh, for Lucas is that he, he starts the story in the middle, his idea of like, if you were a kid and you, you know, missed the last three weeks of these of your cereal yeah. uh, that you not your 
breakfast cereal. Yeah. But at the Saturday matinee cereal short film that, you know, you love, you know, your Flash Gordon, you missed the last three episodes, you know, they're not going to rerun them. No. You missed them. So you have to pick it up after you've missed three episodes. And he says, you know, I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know, I've always said, I've always pitched to you that we should do like a slasher movie, but do the second one. (laughs) Because, yeah. You know, let's start with Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, and that was always my idea to you. Is when we, if we, I always want to do a porno where we'd start at, like, at Part 3. So people are looking for, like, they did Part 1 and 2. But that's the idea. He's directly referencing those 30s, 40s, 50s serials uh, where, they since they're episodic, yeah, let's start it in right in the middle and have, you're going to just tell the epilogue of what happened. Yeah. Uh, well, which ends up being the crawl, but it starts off in such a way that you know you're you're just you drop right into the action. You might have missed last, which week's, I think but is still. is you know a lot of people will point at a, a film like a, like Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress and say that this was the inspiration for Star Wars and stuff like that. I think the biggest thing that Lucas takes from Kurosawa is not even uh, something that's intentional by Kurosawa. You know, when Kurosawa made. Uh, you know, Yojimbo and Sanjuro and yeah. uh, Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress. When he made these like costume or uh, period samurai movies, he made them for ja- for Japan. Yeah, it was it would be like you know us watching a movie about the Civil War or the Revolutionary War. It's part of our history. Yeah, so we're kind of pre-informed. Yeah, about this the feudal Japan and what's happening with these samurai. So. He's making it for an educated audience, Kurosawa. But the beauty of Kurosawa is that his movies trans- are able to transcend that. Yeah, and so Lucas, because awesome. <laughs> and then Lucas sees them as a teenage, no, late teens, early twenties in film school. Yeah, not knowing Japanese feudal history, feudal Japan. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so he's being thrown into this world that's completely foreign to him, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, I mean, each movie may have like Yojimbo or Sanjiro may have like a, a tiny epilogue of a, like a couple lines, yeah. not any kind yeah, of like but a it's scroll. Not a, it's not a world that he's no, ever seen It'll before. set up like, you know, there's feudal Japan, you know, samurais or nomads now because of the fall of dynasties. You have this, you have Toshiro Mofune walking around the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then that's but how it sets up. for the most part, he's... I mean, I mean, you know, look, the, there's a big... Uh, there's a big cross-section of, of weird influences happening, whereas... Uh, you know, Kurosawa is very influenced by Ford, uh, John Ford. Yeah, the director. You know, and Howard Hawks. He's being yeah. very influenced by by westerns of the period. Yeah, and then the spaghetti westerns are direct are being remakes. So, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, are being very influenced by what Kurosawa is doing. Because then uh, Fistful of Dollars, Eastwood's first movie is a direct remake of. Um, of Yojimbo, but Yojimbo, Kurosawa's Yojimbo, is a direct rem- uh, a, dr- a direct telling of Red Harvest, which is Dashiell Hammett, yeah. which is a pulp '30s pulp, uh, you know, very famous. So whereas, pulp. say, so they're all eating each other. It's yeah, all this, yeah, it's the circle of life, <laughs> you know. But but it, whereas, if Lucas saw Fistful of Dollars, yeah, you know, he would have. Uh, he would have some kind of prior knowledge, having grown up on Western cinema, yeah. having it be an American period of history where he doesn't have that with yeah. Yoyimbo. Yeah, because we didn't, because, the, I mean, look at the war. I mean, a lot of that, that was a, that was another big push post-war of all these foreign films because during the war, these countries couldn't, didn't have the, you know, uh, time or money to make these movies. So out of, out of you know, World War Two, 
they they were getting influx of our cinema, American cinema there, and they were making so you have the Italian, you have the French yeah. New Wave, you have Japanese, all these so classic movies coming out. My point is, he's watching, he's being as a viewer, yeah. a young George Lucas is being thrown into this alien world, yeah, that he knows nothing about of feudal Japan, and he's expected to keep up and. Kurosawa is a strong enough filmmaker that those movies work, whether you know that history or not. Yeah, he takes that. If anything, if he ta- doesn't take anything away from Kurosawa, anything else away from Kurosawa, he takes that experience, his personal experience in watching Kurosawa movies, and says, "What if I do this? The way I feel about these Kurosawa movies, this crazy, unfamiliar world to me, where I'm just thrown in, and I do that." in a crazy adventure science yeah. fiction story. I create this new world and I don't explain it. I don't say like, this is how this works. This is what they do. You're expected. You were supposed to have already viewed the previous episodes of this serial. You're already, you're supposed to be cut up, but you missed it. Well, it's kind of like the idea so of, I'm going to ask you to just go with me. It's kind of like the idea of not taking your audience for granted and understanding the intelligence of your audience and knowing that your audience will you know, connect the dots if you give them enough breadcrumbs. And I think he realizes that through the Ford cinema that he's watching in film school. Like he notices that like, I don't need to do this. I can, I can follow this. So the viewer kit can too, if I make it up like a popcorny lighthearted kind of a adventure that all ages can like, you know? Yeah. Like that's the beauty of star Wars. And particularly, like you said, he particularly takes a lot from hidden fortress in particular. And I guess earlier versions of his script, he has a lot of, you know, it's a lot of Flash Gordon, a lot of this, a lot of like, there's elements that you can point to, that, you know, that, that he's he's taking, you know, say Odysseus in the Odyssey, you know, or this, that, and the other thing, you know, and bringing all these together in a cauldron, and then he's stirring them around, and then, you know, like he said, he grew up on these pirate sh- movies, these westerns, and that was also one of his reasonings behind this. He's like, there that within the 70s, there wasn't, this kind of escapism for kids. Yeah. And all these movies that were out were having these bleak, quote unquote, realistic endings. And he's like, I want something that's going to be. Well, even kind of like that time is making some pretty bleak stuff. Yeah. We like talk Watcher of the Woods. <laughs> yeah. You know, Black Hole in the end of the year. I mean, well, that, cause that comes as a. I mean, you have all. Yeah. You have like, I mean, Escape from Witch Mountain in the mid 70s. You have the, what is that? The uh, Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster's contractually obligated already to be in Disney. That's yeah. why she's she can't do this. But you have a lot. You see, even Disney's doing weird stuff at the time. So he's like, I want to do something. That has a, you know, that that's kind of like everyone can go see and it's going to be fun. Basically, like when you used to watch, when you and I used to watch, like, you know, the, the swashbuckling, like Captain Blood, the Clark Gable, the like the fun pirate or, yeah, or yeah. westerns. It's like, you know, you well, want that's that, kind of the beauty of you Star want, Wars. You know, it's it's for a younger audience, but it's not talking down to anybody. Yeah, it's not. It's it's, you know, made as an adventure for children, but it's in in a lot of ways, but it's not, you know, Barney, you know, or (laughs) Teletubbies or whatever, you know, it's, it's not juvenile. Yeah. It's, it's being more respectful to children and, and no, and being in touch, I think with the child in yourself to know the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The adult to know that, you know, you don't need to talk down to kids to have them to understand it. Like you, 
Like, they'll go with it. I mean, this, the movie was almost going to be rated G at one point, too. I mean, we can get to... But, yeah, you know, they had to actually push to have a, uh, a PG. So he's working on this script, and it ends up, you know, now it's the script itself is pushing over 200 pages. He's got so many ideas that he wants to do in this yeah. thing. Because, I mean, he's working in a... Basically, in the idea of, like, a half-hour serial. He takes, like, a year off, and he just starts to just, like, have a healthy appetite of all these... Foreign films, like we said, this space westerns, all these kind of things. But he has and he this starts... idea even before American Graffiti. Yeah, so he's working on this and thinking about it for a long time. Yeah, and then you know he ends up the amount of research he must have done. You know, this is like you know, like I said, I, I through Raiders and now this and now researching this this idea of and you know I think even Lucas gets a little shit on not by us but by. Uh, a, uh, recounting of discussions when we talk about Star Wars the holiday special because he was originally very involved and you know the people that ended up writing that have some very odd stories about meeting with Lucas about yeah, it we that, talk about that, that we too. talk about you know we you know we kind of take a little umbrage with him story. it's like what the hell it sounds yeah he sounds kind of like you know he just leaves <laughs> him out to dry by that time for the holiday special um, but uh, you know just things ideas that he has for it and um but in doing Raiders of the Lost Ark on the show and now, you know, researching this, I, I mean, I kind of I mean, am in awe to think that this guy uh, is able to take all of this stuff and kind of like then filter it through into one like, you know, uh, story all these things that he all these influences and like i said it's researched i mean and that's you know that's another thing that you can it's a whole other story it's like when you know you, you watch it and you know something about this and you're researched about specific topics whether it be a mythology or whatever and you see that it in lucas's story is is lucas putting it in there or are you seeing it you know like yeah. it's chicken or the egg yeah yeah <laughs> because uh, i think it's the 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 uh, having so much of it be generic, which is what we're talking about, it's with so the much Joseph- of the familiarity that we know as a culture. Yeah, it, it, it's it's yeah, it, it's is are you reading into it? You bringing your own thoughts and ideas to it, or is you know it's almost like the what cinema, I guess, the purest form is supposed to be. You're supposed yeah, to yeah. be able to bring what, or is he you know is he directly putting these ideas or in? Or are you looking and you extrapolating these like these? You know, we watched this this special about uh prior to this for our research about like the thoughts and themes and you have these you know phys- physics and, uh, <laughs> and all these people like these thinkers and they're like and he brings this here and it's like you know like you're saying how much of it is them just interjecting like this is so much like odysseus going back and seeing the yeah, sirens yeah. and uh, like that and you know the isle you know and what's so amazing Iliad. is for the for like the detailed spectacle that star wars is it's also a, like a blank canvas yeah. for the imagination. <laughs> you, could, you could put whatever the hell you want in it, you know. So he builds a script. He starts making this. He's got this massive script happening, and he realizes, like, I can't make this. Over, it's like, too, a couple years. It's he's too like, big. Yeah. So what he does is he takes basically with the first act. He takes the first third of that script, yeah. and he decides, let me make this. And that's what becomes Star Wars. Now, this is where, I don't know if you and I have had this conversation on the on the show, because... I don't remember anything, or if this is off thing, or if I've even had it with you, but I've assumed since I've known you for 78 years <laughs> that we've had the conversation yeah. before because people start knocking Lucas as like how much 
of the trilogy had been invented prior, you know, that epic yeah, yeah. conversation. It, you know, he always, like, you know, there, uh, there's conjecture where if you talk to him when he was making this, he's like, I don't know where it's going to go. But then, like, soon later, he's like, I already know where it's going. It's going to be a trilogy, and we're going to shoot the third one in space. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't know, you know, so hearing this and reading all this, if, if this, in fact, was a 200-page script at first, you know, where, which it was much more nuanced with other scenes that he cut and different plot points and subplots and characters and all that. How much of that was he just leaving on the cutting room floor to this be the standalone movie that, you know, this originally wasn't supposed to be a sequel per se, they say. I mean, he thought it could have been, but for all intents and purposes, this was just going to be a one-off. Yeah. So I wonder how much of this is, in fact, canon where he was going to take the, you know, whatever else that is. What is that? 90, He's taking whatever else is left and making two other films with it. Sure. Or is that just extra that he had to just slice out the fat of Star Wars? You know, Wars? It's, that's a good point. You know? Because um, he certainly says that he envisioned this to be this long story, and then there's other plot. Like you saying, he's starting this, um, and that's a really distinction to understand, too, that uh, Part 4 and New Hope weren't slat, uh, like, uh spliced onto it until yeah. the re-release in 79 prior to yeah. Empire Strikes when you Back saw coming out. It, if you saw this in the theaters in 1977, the and, opening, and even in the 78 with the re-releases. The opening crawl just said Star Wars and then like... That's it. You know, it said Star Wars and then like it's a time of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There was no episode four, A New Hope. Yeah. Uh, he claims that he... Well, that's the thing. You yeah, know, so it's you, like... You, you have to just... Go, it's hearsay. I yeah. mean, you have to either believe him... Is it admissible in a court of law? I don't know. You know, yeah. Do we uh, believe him? And if he is had the he, whole, you know, look, we've established he's a smart guy. Yeah. Um, in ways that we haven't even gotten into yet. And I can believe, you know, me being a person who writes, I can see I have a story that is already in three parts, so I could see. Oh, I can't fit this into this first. Uh, so I have ideas yeah. for two or three, or I have characters, you know, uh, Boba it, Fett coming out. They're making it that they don't use him in here, but he premieres in a parade. Then he has a proper premiere in the holiday special. So it's like you could see Job of the Hut. But in a way, it's like, is it a case where Lucas has created a, a history? Yeah. Uh, is created, he, the an, lore. created his own narrative. Yeah. To sell the, the, sell the idea. Of course. You know, in history. Like, created his own character. George Lucas as a character. Yeah. And created his own story the way, you know, uh, you know, anything. Like, you know, Cary Grant. Yeah. As Archibald Leach, he creates an accent and a name and cleans himself up and he becomes like this major fucking sex. Yeah, and people don't realize that that's not who he is. How he talks. That he created, you know, Cary Grant didn't talk like Cary Grant in real life. No, he just that became a character. He created a character. Uh, yeah. John Wayne, in a lot of ways, yeah. did the same thing. Yeah, how he talked. And uh, I think, you know, a guy like Hitchcock was kind of, as a filmmaker, was a very savvy, brilliant guy to create the persona of Hitchcock. Yeah, to, to understand that people like that. I mean, even the musician Tom Waits does that, where he tells lies to people, and then that, you know, that becomes canon in interviews. So then you yeah. don't realize, wait, what? This is complete bullshit. But so then at the it's, time, it's yeah. a good question. Like, is Lucas, I think he's smart enough and savvy enough to do that. Is that what he's doing? I don't know. And is it even, is it even a, Useful to talk about in this, in, our, in the <laughs> confines of our conversation? Probably not. But because, like, he says that, uh, 
you know, we're, we're now getting into like the making, you know, the making of the movie and stuff. I mean, he says that he always wanted it to be now. Now he says, yeah, that. he always wanted it to be nine episodes, episodes. <laughs> episode four. Yeah. But the studio was like, if we put episode four on there, people are going to be like, did I miss the first three? What yeah. are, what's going on? Whereas if we just put Star Wars on it, then yeah. people will just accept it. And they didn't even want that. And to it be wasn't the- until it was a success that he was able to, he had the clout to say, now can, when we re-release it, can we put episode four New Hope on it? So, but... It wasn't even going to be termed Star Wars. It was, you know, first they had the adventures of Luke Starkiller. They had the Star Wars colon from the adventures of Luke Starkiller. He had all these different other uh, titles, you know, before... The adventures of Luke... And then, like, the script that they auditioned with was called The Adventures of Luke Skywalker as taken from the Journal of the Wills saga, number one, the Star Wars. Yeah, and that is another thing. He he he, he wrote this kind of uh, short... I guess it's like a two- or three-page kind of a, a Bible, well, which is, you know, the, 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 the journal... Like you said, yeah. The Adventures of Luke Star from the Journal of the Will. So it's like this, and this had a lot of elements of the other part in it too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, needless to say, this has been because I've often wanted to create like a, a, a science fiction story like this. But the intimidating thing about it is to do something like this, you have to create a whole world. Like whether it's in the movie or not you as a storyteller have to understand the history of these people leading into it. You know, it's not like a science fiction movie that just takes place in the future where again, like the Kurosawa movies, you're working with a predetermined people nerdy. Yeah. Like an educated audience about what history is. He's creating, this is a, this is not in the future. This is a long time ago (laughs) in a far, far, far away in a galaxy, far, far away. This is not earth. This is not the future. This happened this is ancient history. I, and I think nowadays for people who may best understand that isn't the author Jar, George R.R. R. Martin did that with the Game of Thrones series where this guy created these books that are like a thousand pages a piece, you know, and they yeah. have completely different or the worlds, Lord of the Rings or stuff, yeah, yeah, what Tolkien know. did, you know, where it's like you have these completely different Middle Earth or, um, you know these completely different worlds where there is so much backstory. Like if you read the the game of Thrones books and you go watch the series, it's like cliff notes. It's like, what's the point of watching the TV show when the books are so much more fulfilling because there's so much more in there. But what all you don't get to see boobs. You don't get to see, (laughs) I'll tell you, there's so much more messed up stuff going on in the books that I'll tell you, you know, I will give up some tittage any day for, for what's going on in the books. But it's like to just think of the, 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 um, just the 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 breadth of that. Just the yeah. the idea of sitting down as an author. Where I've heard like years ago, George R. R. Martin has like he pays people just to be like timeline keepers to to know where this happened here for these characters because you have to have you have thousands of characters who yeah. have their own. So it's just so amazingly complex and some people can do it like it's nothing you know what i mean yeah you know or like uh, you know what's her face does that now kind of uh ro- um jk Rowling. yeah she does that with harry potter to a certain extent yeah you know and i've said plenty of times to you off camera or off mic and as well as maybe on this show that that fascinates me the most the the idea of going into how these people make these things and yeah. like the first one are they already coming up with a bible prior to it or while they're writing it is all this coming out and then they have the realization the epiphany that sure. like you know let's make this be a world well lucas talks about how uh he basically everything 
prior to Star Wars, the story. Yeah. He wrote, was an, was like an outline. Yeah. He was like, I need to understand the history of Obi-Wan and Darth Vader and and the, the way the government works <laughs> and the Empire and the Rebellion. I need to know all this to be able to write a story where I don't talk about any of it. And it's, well, yeah, and that's what they, you know, then that's another uh, lesson in, in writing for our purposes here, script writing. We would have teachers that would tell you, if you write a script and you write characters, you have to know every single thing about that character. They would remember that would, that would be exercises for us. Do yeah. character outlines, do whatever. So that even if it's not in your script, you need to know if your character was married, divorced, whatever, so that it will better yeah. help you service your story because there are some questions you need to have answered. And this is ideas that, like him, it, you know, it's amazing to go back and watch this. And they're mentioning the Clone Wars, and they're mentioning this, and they're mentioning that. Well, and that's stuff I you pi- don't see for another, four, you know, 30 years. The thing you know? I, yeah. But also the thing I picked up on in looking at Star Wars this time around. Watch out, why, why, why we watched our beat-up VHS copy. <laughs> our grainy, you know, you know tracking we, was off. Yeah. Uh, just the line, for instance, where Peter Cushing... Grandma Parker. God bless her. Yeah. He comes walking into like the conference room. In his slippers. And he's like, the the council's been dissolved, blah, blah, blah. It's like, like, I never. But since I went and listened to the radio play, (laughs) I know what they're talking about because they explained it in the radio play. They killed the council permanently. It's been permanently dissolved. But that's just like, it's like a throwaway line that you don't really need to know for this story. Yeah. But it adds history. Yeah. When we. I'm gonna make a weird correlation when we when I did uh, a guest overs episode with um, Patrick Bromley about Teen Teen Wolf. We talked a lot about this scene where it's one shot where Michael J. Fox uh, uh, and Boof are walking towards the, the camera and they talk about remember that time oh when we ran away and it's a beautiful scene it's my favorite scene in the whole movie and what it does is it it lets us know that these two people have history together and we don't know it. We don't need to know it, but it, it creates some kind of depth to the story in these characters. And it's something that you and I have talked about a lot with those throwaway lines, like in escape from New York, you're the guy who flew the golf fighter over Leningrad or, you know, uh, you know, all these little throwaway one lines that have so much backstory in them that, that it gives you a level of, credibility to you know the story but here with like say um peter cushing it's like you don't even need to have that line because we don't even know what the fuck he's talking about this sort of <laughs> grand council no but it's like it, it lets you know that as a subconsciously i think in most they're going cases, rogue <laughs> of that like there's this hierarchy and this government system yeah at work here it just creates realism yeah within this crazy world of of wookies and jawas and yeah and sand people now we skipped a whole thing about he meets uh lucas meets uh he, this new guy becomes head of i think fox alan ladd jr alan ladd jr and alan ladd jr is all about talent he's yeah he was pitching lucas starts pitching this idea to everybody under the sun he goes to disney universal warner they all say no he gets to alan ladd jr 20th Century Fox is kind of like in kind of a turmoil financially. They did like a big campaign with Dr. Doolittle some years ago with merchandising. It flopped, so they don't know really what to do. And then he kind of pitches to Alan Ladd Jr., uh, who I think meaning Alan Ladd Jr. would be the son of Alan Ladd, the famous actor who's like in Shane and all these other movies. 
and I hope that's right. If I'm not, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, but it sounds <laughs> like it because he's a junior for Christ's sake. <laughs> Seems uh, reasonable. Yeah, yeah, reasonable assumption on my part. So and he and he approaches Lad and he and he explains it all to Lad and like you said, Lad is looking for talent. Yeah, and Lad, Lad sees American Graffiti and says, "This guy's got talent." Yeah, and and this is a this is a crazy idea. And this is what I'm looking for right now, and this is what this world needs. And he understands what talent is. And, and then they say that, well, Lucas ends up saying, and Alan Ladd Jr. ends up saying that since he understands what talent is, he takes the movie on, but it's not like he's taking the movie on. He's investing in Lucas in himself. Lucas, yeah. He's taking a, a chance saying, and, you know, and that's all we need for some two people out there to do for us. <laughs> <laughs> if we can find out Alan Ladd Jr., we have a lot of talent right here if you listen to us. <laughs> Now, anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> in the midst of all this, we're talking, you know, we've established the 70s. We've yes. established the film industry. With the whole cinema prior to it. <laughs> in <laughs> Japanese Kowasawa. <laughs> but the government at I, the time. I think what's really fascinating, which I don't think people take into account. Okay, so, uh, I, there's so much to talk about. What Lucas. <laughs> Calm down. I just threw water in his face. To a st- let, let me go this route. Okay. Okay, Lucas. Put your turn signal. He on. gets his. He gets his green light. Yes. To do it. Alan Ladd says, we're going to give you $8 million to do this He movie. says, I need 13 He says, well, yeah. I can't get to 13 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they even go to, uh, what do we say? They're even uh, William Freakin, Peter Bogdanovich, and I think it was Coppola had a had a, a company together for a minute. of It was called like the director or something. And he even went to them, and they didn't like, eh. But they only had like $3.5 million they can yeah, yeah. greenlight a movie with, and he needed eight. So like you know, nobody was able to, you know. So he gets, finally Alan Ladd says, okay, we're going to give you eight. You need 12? No. No. Give me eight. <laughs> and it ends up being... That's $70, too. Yeah, That's a lot yeah. of money, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he ends up... So much, so many things to talk about. Yeah. Let me stay on track here. So we talked about special effects houses, the special effects departments at, studi- at the studios. At tw- particularly 20th, 20th Century Fox. So Lucas does something completely unheard of. Never done before. He decides to make this movie. I need a company that could do this. Yeah, he goes to 20th Century. He looks. Their um, special effects department is not anywhere in kind of a shape that he's going to be able to need because for this story that we're talking about, he needs to invent. This has never been done yes. before. If for no other reason, a young person's like, I don't get why Star Wars was so big. It's because it's never been done before. <laughs> he said, "He says I can't do it the way it is with what currently exists." Yeah. So he creates the first independent special effects company, Industrial Light and Magic. Yes. And he takes the all these people, these ingenious minds of this young. You know, hippie talent. <laughs> yeah, these hipsters. These, these. <laughs> these young people and says, look, we're going. I'm making an adventure. John and Dykstra. And all we're these going on an adventure. He gets Dennis Muren, John Dykstra, uh, uh, Richard Edlund, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Yep. Um, it's all these people together. I and mean, about that, 75, I guess, is around this time now. And he creates a business. Now, I think. And to through, make all his all the make all the special effects, and he's they need. create the first computerized uh, motion capture f- camera system, yeah, which allows you to uh, Di- dice reflex. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, it's the camera that allows you, which they use a lot. They used a lot through the eighties, like Dead Ringers and stuff, where you they have a computer that makes sure that you get the shot 
exactly right multiple times so that you can layer the so you pro- yeah you 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 program the 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 uh, it, and it's it sounds really rudimentary now but back then you think about with 70s technology you're programming the camera and whatever it's on the arm on a track to do that replicate the same shot every time because human error doing it you're going to shake you're going to yeah, move yeah. it's not going to be perfect so i think this is what the dystra flex was where it's you're able to then just replicate that move so many times that you're able to then add other elements into it so you can have a miniature for one bit yeah. you can have the a way background. you did special effects back then and we talk about it you know all the with uh, both the matte painting which is an in-camera effect but then you have to make the spaceships and the backgrounds put all these things together you have to you're optical, shooting yeah. multi- multiple layers with of an optical images printer. over and over again uh and you if you want to have lose. movement that's all fine and dandy if you want to keep the camera stationary. Lock it down. Don't move it. It's a static shot. That's you know that's easy in comparison. That but was the issue with that paintings. Movement. Yeah. yeah. So it's to be able to do that, you have to have the camera make the same exact move every single time. Not not stray for a millimeter. Or so you like have that. these young minds coming in, inventing new ways to do things, creating new technology. Uh, it took this, them, t- they took them long enough to fucking to get it all together. But at the same time, and we're not going to go down this uh, road in in a lot in you know in depth. But I think what's interesting to put into perspective at the same time, in the same area, because Lucas was a Northern California boy, we have Steve Jobs and <laughs> Steve Wozniak creating Apple. Yeah, you know this is a time in their garage. You know this is, I think that there's no small coincidence here. I mean it's. You were we talked we started this podcast by saying that, you know timing was everything for Star Wars. Not only do we have that the seventies was a dark time, Star Wars comes out is escapism. Uh not only do we have Lucas being a film student in the sixties when the studio system's changing, not all these things, we also have the technology is now at a point where this can be done. Yeah, it's blossoming. Three years before. Yeah, we went to fucking Mar- <laughs> the moon with less technology than we have in our cell phone now. All, you know, it's all transistors and tubes technology. You have young people longing to push the boundaries, not just in cinema, in everything. It's all because of Kennedy saying, in 10 years, we're going to go to the moon. Not only do we have young filmmakers... You know, pushing the boundaries of cinema, what you can not not just uh, technologically, but uh, narratively and content wise, what you can show, what you can do. You also have young technological minds like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak uh, and like Dennis Murin and Phil Tippett and John Dykstra and these people in the film business. These young minds that are not constrained by uh, or restrained by what's go what came before them. They're yeah. looking forward, yeah. and this is all happening at the same time. And this is why well, Star also, Wars can be made. That's also another point to bring up. The people you forget at the time. You know, we talked about the, the, there is the space race with the Cold War. Maybe I don't know if that's one of the only good things that came out of the Cold War was getting us to the moon and showing that with Kennedy. Saying, well, you know, that's debatable. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in the late 60s, you know, we're going to get somebody to the moon. But in the 70s, it was this huge thing of that. We had this huge idea that we were going to have space stations. And the shuttle was designed to be able to be docking with these space stations. And the shuttle only became like just a, a, tr- 
truck getting stuff in and out like a convoy, which kind of sucks because they cut. But in the 70s, it was this era of anything is possible technology-wise, we're going to do it, and you're going to start seeing these innovations where they come up with all these, you know, which end up being like fax machines to cell phones to, to personal computers and yeah. stuff like that. So it is a time where all these minds are coming out of yeah, colleges. We and, sent people to, you know, we sent astronauts to the moon on like the computing power of like a calculator. Yeah, like a Texas Instruments calculator. <laughs> you know, it, 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 that's just mind blowing to think. And then they even say we probably can't get to the moon now with the technology we have because we, it's just become, you know, we, we're not even thinking about that. But it's just, you know, when you set your mind to do something and give your, give people a, like a timeline, they could do it, you know, and it's just amazing. The 70s, Maybe a lot of it wasn't seen until the 80s with computers sure. and, and all that kind of stuff. But but it's happening. People were now. doing it. I mean, computers were around since the 40s, you know, with doing stuff, computing and, you know, uh, crunching numbers and stuff or, you know, that kind of a thing. But they were as big as freaking rooms, you know, I mean, you know, in, in these processors, you know. I mean, the computer that they had to do um, Star Wars with that they made to just do these moves is just so basic to today's standards. But it was, you know, it was, it was amazing, these and, renderings. you know, we, we've talked about like computer ge- generated imagery in this, you know, we talked about it with the uh, last Starfighter. Yeah. Which Lady, never would have happened. No. If it wasn't for the success of Star Wars. No, I mean, uh, you know, then the stuff that and we've, and we haven't, we haven't gotten to young Sherlock Holmes yet, but we've talked about compu- this movies and we've talked about it with uh, black hole. Yeah. I was going to say that the stuff the black hole did, which beat this movie, which was directly because the competition was doing it. They were able to invent, a Dystra X camera that was able to do the move a certain amount of times, but then you were able to pan within that move yeah. so that you can reveal, say, uh, you know, with a matte painting, you don't, you have to keep the camera stationary with a matte, but with their cameras, they were able to pan up and you were able to see, you know, the, but there's the imagery in star Wars, which I, th- I'm not positive. So don't hold me to this, but I think it's the plans for the death star. Yeah. That imagery, those plans was created by a computer. Yeah. So it's one of the first. It's one of the first uses of cinema of computer generated imagery. Yeah. In movies. Yeah, you have. Star Wars. I think uh, Westworld holds the the the, the thingy for um, first ever with his eyes, the POV of Yul Brenner at the end, and then I know the black hole. I think has the first sequence at the opening, uh, over the credits, and but in and, between those two, yeah, in seventy seven, you, you get, get Star very- Wars doing, <laughs> you know, and even like the I think the the. The sites, isn't it? Even the blaster the sites. computer, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that, that might know. even be animations that they created. Like, because like, off a paperweight or because something. Because then we get, you know, we talked about this with Escape from New York, which is like 81, Yeah, maybe? Uh, everything there was not done computers, but done, to look, but done to look like to look like what was happening in Star Wars. I guess they didn't have the budget. Yeah, so they but just it's did all practicals. Like, you know, with, it's all with, like, like neon with, tape on. Yeah, with ga- yellow gaff tape, you know, <laughs> bright gaff tape on it in the dark or whatever. Reflect, looks reflective still, tape. I mean, it looks amazing. Yeah, it, looks, it looks like computer, yeah. But so Lucas creates, you know, I think that's probably, Lucas's probably biggest strength as a filmmaker and as a businessman is to, I think, know his limitations and think out of the box with uh, ways to fix things, ways to make things happen, which I think, unfortunately, is the, to juxtapose it to, you know, the, the prequels, is that, like, Lucas kind of, like, got... He might. <laughs> that's a discussion for another episode, but it's like he loses that 
when it's like when given the chance to do whatever he wants with, with, it with doesn't it. work as well as when he which we've talked about with just art in general that great art comes from restriction in a yeah. lot of ways um but lucas says like this i can't do this the way it is so let's create industrial light and magic yeah he does this several times after this and if we have time we'll just cite some examples post star wars i mean lucas becomes a completely independent filmmaker after star wars he finances Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, with bank loans, he doesn't go to. The, he doesn't want the studio to pay for it. All because of the marketing. <laughs> all his forward thinking of selling all the toys from. You know, uh, Star he creates Wars. An, he creates the industrial light magic. He goes on to create the computer. His he create his companies that he builds creates the computers. The Pixar computer. Yeah, that creates Pixar. He creates Dolby Surround Sound. He creates all these things. He creates the first nonlinear editing system. Yeah. Maybe not personally. He's very much like an a Thomas Edison that way. Like he has the vision, and he gets the people to <laughs> to do it. But he creates like the the first editing system that becomes the precursor to Avid and Final Cut and Premiere. So you're not physically cutting it with your you know splicing it together. You're doing it all on a computer. He's a guy with vision. Yeah. And only a guy with vision could, and at that point in time, could have created a movie like Star Wars yeah. and pulled it off because nobody thought he was going to pull it off. Yeah. Nobody knew what it was. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing, you know, uh, you know, we talk about <coughs> time and, and, you know, why this movie could uh, make the impact that it did. And it's not just because of the things we've already discussed of, uh, of the time and the and when it's made and the and, and it being a, a positive escape as a movie and in a kind of a dark time and 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 all this stuff. It also has to do with this was a really fucking weird idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we said it had never not something like this had never been done before, but it was just just like think about it for a second, take a step back and just be like, put yourself in that mindset. Of like being that time period, those movies, you know, the, the way movies were then, and the kinds of stories that were being told, to then say, like, look at the, like this is the movie I want to make. Read the script. And yeah. Be like, what the fuck? And that's why he has to go to Ralph McQuarrie. Yeah, I was to say he had to go to Ralph McQuarrie because he says, you know, in just submitting the script to like Alan Ladd and the other executives at 20th Century, he wants to also show them what he can't show through his writing. So he People goes to they can't. The, their their mind now it's easy to p- picture it yeah because he did it but because he had never done it there was no frame of reference before yeah so that. he's he has to go to a conceptual artist Ralph McQuarrie who we've brought up multiple times on the podcast he goes to him and he commissions like a half a dozen kind of paintings that he when he submits the the spec script or the script to, to 20th century he includes these pictures of this is what this is going to look like this is the world i'm talking yeah and about he says here. don't worry about what it looks like and how much it'll be to make i want just just to give them an idea of what and he does what like five or six yeah you can see the millennium falcon <clears throat> you can see the cantina yeah and them in, on the desert and stuff like that you know or maybe even vader one you know and, and then that's where these executives and alan lad jr look at Oh, okay, we kind of we can now we have an idea what the fuck this little kid's talking about. <laughs> you know what the hell he means, and they take a gamble on him, and they and they you know they they green light it to a certain extent, and then he starts now having to try to cast this thing with or, or you know he develops ILM Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, he's still tinkering with the early script revisions where he's you know he's thinking about having. Uh, Luke Starkiller be like a 60-year-old general, and then he's maybe having him be a child, maybe having him be a family of little people. 
and then he's trying to figure so he's all he's going through all these and then he's trying at the same time take out too much of it's too much like hidden fortress or it's too much like buck rogers it's too much like dune evidently a lot of the shit he he took lifted to put in here from dune for tatooine was so much so that when david lynch was going to make dune he's like shit you know lucas already <laughs> did all this already for star star yeah, wars yeah. so how the hell do i make dune how do I be respectful well, of the like, source material for Dune, but then not make it look like Star Wars? Well, you that's, know? It's like the reason why, like the only Ian Fleming book that never got made into a James Bond movie for so long was uh, Casino, Royale. Casino Royale, because all the other Bond movies took all the good shit yeah, the wall out, of, wall. out of Casino Royale and put them in their movies. So like when you took all the shit out that had already been in a Bond movie out of Casino Royale, yeah, you weren't really left with much. Yeah, you have like, you know, Jimmy Bond and that old one we love. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, he's, again, there's other influences, you know, and then, and then there's another, uh, bit, I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but there's, you know, uh, I always talk about, I love Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds from the sixties, the, the big thing about marionettes. And they had this great thing about, uh, they were one of the first people when you're doing these mini, uh, uh, marionettes that are like, I don't know, like say three or four feet tall, they're making this entire world. They were using the technology of aging things and making things look used and like the models and stuff. And that was kind of new, but what then Lucas does here with the special effects. This is not going to be a futuristic sci-fi world that's going to be clean like a Logan's Run, yeah. like a 2001 where everything, like Star Trek, where everything's brand new, clean, pristine. He wants it to look like lived in. He look like it's going to be like a sense of a document, a documentary where you're just. It, this is the day in the life of Luke Skywalker, Luke Starkiller. So everything has to look like it's used. It's, everything looks has to look like it's practical. Everything has to look like there's a reason for behind it. So all these things they make, these props, these miniatures, all this stuff is they make them look aged, beaten up, uh, repurposed. You know. But he also he also wants things because of his love for like car engines and stuff. He wants you to be able to look at something and be like, okay, I can figure out why either re- you can like see can the rivets see, and where, I can see where that would work. Like yeah. Why, see yeah. You why that's a machine. Think it out. It. Yeah. As opposed to just being something silly. So it's a concept that, you know, was started with, with Thunderbirds for aging stuff. But then when you get to this, it's like, that's a whole new in sci-fi. That's completely new. I don't, I mean, I might be wrong, but there's really not an example I can readily think of of, an, of, of a, a movie in this context that's taking things and having it. So this is a whole new, again, you're going well, into he, a world where it's like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, you're selling this world. Yeah. And well, I think that that's the byline of this. If you, yeah, if you yeah. couldn't sell this world, these people, the story, this wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You have to, you have to be able to have an audience pretty much instantly be on board yeah like uh submit to it yeah you know like not be thinking about anything other than just be like completely involved and i think that that was the their their biggest concern was going to be the opening crawl and then that opening shot yeah if they couldn't get people interest with the with the uh epilogue and the crawl and then the opening shot panning down onto the planets and then seeing the uh the imperial what's what's her 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 destroyer yeah but her her thing going over the counselor ship and then the star destroyer yeah. coming over in that firefight then if you couldn't have then that would and that and that's what they ended up succeeding in that yeah. it worked that grabbed that Which, first shot grabbed everyone's attention and they were on board and then after you're that you could do whatever the hell you want and you've got the audience in your pocket yeah well it's funny because he talks about how um you know on a film set you part of the crew you have a division of the crew what their job is to come on and clean yeah once you're done you know straighten things up 
And he said they would always want to like sweep the floor and like wipe off the countertops and stuff, make everything shiny and nice. And he would be like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, leave it. This is, we want it to look like it's lived you in. No, no. Like, we, it's grimy. Like, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, this is a floor that's been walked on a million times. It's not like this clean, and, pristine and floor. And didn't we just have that happen someplace else? Another podcast where they were clean every day, they were cleaning it and you have to come back and they have to put it. I feel like in the past couple months yeah, we just that did does one. Sound familiar. Oh, but at the same time, stuff. what's interesting is he also talks about um, audiences that saw this movie for the first time, first run, because they were experiencing something completely new. Like it moved so quickly for yeah. them, the story, because they were they were digesting everything for the first time. So everything was like. You know, it was like this crazy roller coaster. Where's he? He's like, but now that you've once you've seen it, it's actually a pretty simple story that takes its time. <laughs> but at the time, it was like it was just like it was so much information on screen that audiences like couldn't take it. So it seemed like the super like fast paced crazy movie. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like after after they've been educated in the world of Star Wars. And they're not looking at everything that's going on, everything that's on screen, the mise-en-scene, <laughs> everything. Uh, once they've seen it, and now they're just going along for the ride, it was like it ends up being actually a pretty, like, not slow, but a pr- pretty easy-paced adventure flick. Yeah. But I think that's really interesting uh, to kind of put that way because I don't know about you, and, and you know, hopefully we'll get... Don't judge of, me. We'll be able to talk about a little bit. I'll have time to at least talk about like personal importance or, or stories about Star Wars. But like, I don't remember a time. I remember somebody, I think it was our, 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 our buddy, Mike Vanderbilt. I just recently saw a tweet uh, a couple days ago where he was talking about somebody had posted, you know, like when was the first time you saw Star Wars? And he recites like, I don't know. It must have been this or that. I don't know. Yeah. Like Star Wars, I've never. It's always been with you. I don't remember a time where Star Wars wasn't a thing. I had an older brother who was like who's like five years older than me. So like, growing up, you know, I was born in '78. Yeah. So <laughs> Star Wars already come out. And well, uh, I think for us, it's the best ways. Is it's our Batman? Because I talk to people who are older than me that I work with, who are maybe your brother's age, that talk about for you and I. It's like we can remember pre Batman 1989 and post Batman 1989. Yeah, how yeah. that kind of changed things and i don't know if that's a fitting example but for our purposes it is but for them yeah. they talk about prior to star wars it was all you know you're into the 6 million dollar 6 million dollar man logan's run all the disaster films tv's emergency all those stuff after that shit it's everything star wars and suddenly you have book rogers you have star trek the movie sure. you have Battlestar galactic Battlestar galactica you yeah. have all you know everything you know so that's Pre and post. But, like, so I grew up always having the toys in the house. Yeah. You know, like, we had the figures. We never had, unfortunately, we never had the Millennium Falcon, but we had, like, the Death Star playset. I grew up, it was always there. Always new Star Wars. One of my earliest memories that I can think of, earliest images that I think of in my brain is dark room, screen lit Dagobah. Mm-hmm. You know? My parents must have taken me and my brother in 1981 or whatever <laughs> to go see fucking 1980s. See, if I show back, it's it's the only, it's the one of my earliest memories. So you saw, looking up at the screen as a little kid, and you saw Empire in the in the theater. Yeah, 
Okay. And that's the one of the, f- the earliest things I remember. My mom tells stories about us going to see Superman 2 about me funny stories that if we ever get to the Superman movies which we just talked about which we'll probably do at some point which we Not probably I'm sorry. We, we very likely will do it we point. we talk about in the next episode <laughs> and uh uh because we talked about Santa Claus the movie last year yes um we did for christmas cuz yeah. it was made by the same the same uh, uh producers uh but I don't remember Superman I do remember looking up and seeing Dagobah, like yeah. this, you know, just be like, "What the fuck?" Because <laughs> it is a, it's a completely magical thing. And yeah, yeah. I can't imagine, you know, being able to have seen Star Wars uh, in the theater for the first time. I was too young to really it. remember Empire Strikes Back, but yeah. uh, just images. Because I, I mean, I was only like, three, and see, like, now I don't remember. I don't think I ever. I don't remember seeing Empire. I remember having Empire on tape and playing with it. And for me, the, the best part of Empire being the opening. I love the whole scene in Hoth and with the Imperial yeah. Walkers. And after that, I, the, I, I the get... The famous tape? The, that is the famous <laughs> tape. And I get... I kind of got... I get bored in the middle. Like, ah, oh, this shit is... And then at the end, in Cloud City, it picks up again for me. Yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. you know, I'm like three or four at the time. But I do remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater and that entire day I remember seeing what, what I was watching at the time. And then my dad like, hey, let's go see, you know, Return of the Jedi. So, I, you know, I was lucky enough to see Return of the Jedi. And I guess... I remember when Jedi Second came or third out, run. A, yeah. You know? And then I remember being, watching it on TV and I remember... And I was looking to see what the specials we watched for the backstory to, to this episode here was I remember seeing the specials on TV and them talking about how they're doing special effects and I remember vividly being little and watching them doing like they're out like in you know California somewhere and they're like by the big old um uh, those huge, huge metal towers that have power lines. Them using like a Nagra with like a microphone oh, yeah. headset ben and doing, Burt. yeah, and Ben Burt doing the, uh, the the on the on the the metal, uh, you know, you know. Then and, and I was fascinated when I was so little that that's how they're getting the sound. And they're like in somebody's backyard, like can I help you? And like they're, you know, they're like, <laughs> and they're using like you know the metal, um, the me- the metal. What would you call those uh, the rods or whatever you are that sh- that hold up this big. Um, uh, the cables, the cables, cables, yeah, the cables that hold up these massive, like you know, those those uh, electrical towers that like, like not not like a telephone pole, but the massive metal ones, yeah, and then yeah. him getting the sound effect off a cable, you know, like that, you know. Yeah. The well, that's tension. the thing. It's like everything had to be created. Yeah. You know, like and Ben Burton about, had to make this organic library. Yeah. Not, not only do we have industrial light magic doing effects in a way that had never been done before to pull off, pull this thing off in a realistic and a believable way, but you had to think like, what is this going to sound like? So it, the underappreciated, aside from music, maybe even more so than music yeah. in a film, like the underappreciated thing about uh, you know aspect the department of of movies is the sound department. Yeah, the Foley like, or... The, like all the... Not, you know... Anything. Not, not, you know, obviously, yes, the production sound, but all everything that goes into the post-production sound. And you can read a lot about post-production sound in my book, Score to Death. Of course. <laughs> Conversations with some of Horror's greatest uh, composers where... Because Alan Howarth was a... Uh, not only composing music but he did a lot of stuff in uh, not Star Wars films, but he, did, he worked on all the Star Trek films. But creating sounds for a... For a for a universe. I mean, this is something... I mean, we talk a lot about Ben Burt in the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, cast that we've mentioned a few times. Uh, and this, obviously, Star Wars comes before that. But what he does with Star Wars, he really... Not only does Industrial Light Magic change the way special effects are going to be forever, what Ben Burt does with Star Wars creates... Uh, changes the way sound is thought about. 
yeah. in film. He's really a pioneer. You Not only do you have George Lucas doing this uh, iconic film uh, in the midst of the late 70s, but what he does is he creates the team around him that... Uh, you could say Star Wars and George Lucas create changed changed the world. Yeah, but Char- Star Wars, Lucas's, you know, we talk. I just said Lucas's biggest strength is is his limitations the, is or... the is the problem solving and the way to. But what goes hand in hand to that part of that is knowing, finding the talent to to hand it off to, and finding the people that are going to be able to take and create take what he's telling them what's in the script and create that yeah that's that that's if you that's probably the greatest talent anybody can have is is being having the eye for the talent surrounding yourself with people <laughs> and being able to surround yourself it. with with the people that are at that time unknown but will become the pioneer top of their field people like n- recognizing that talent early on and giving them the outlet to do it. And it also becomes, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Lucas is certainly at the helm here directing the ship, but they also help him keep that on course so it doesn't become this bloated, overweighting mass. You know, they help him kind of keep him in check so everything kind of lines up serendipitously. But at so the same is... time, they talk about how, like, Industrial Light and Magic was a bunch of young people. Yeah. And so there was a tendency to be kind of lazy. Well, yeah, they, they were calling them, like, almost would... like hippies. And it's like, they're like, because they're sitting out there and they're like, hey, you got to hurry this <laughs> and shit And Lucas up. would have to go in and fucking crack the whip. I yeah. mean, he really was, he had to be the general. And there was know? some kind of resentment there, like, you know, because when they... In, in Van Nuys, when they get, they just got a garage, they they had to in, put everything in place. There was nothing in this garage. They had to put all this stuff in, this equipment, this stuff, and how they were going to, you know, make these shots. So a year goes by, and they haven't even shot a frame of special effects. And they're like, what are you doing? And they're like, to their... This has never been done yeah, before. Yeah, to their defense, they're like, we, we've been building it. We've been making this damn fucking computer thing here. You know, this guy Dykstra's, you know, so it's like they're all this stuff. So just then, like what you're, George, just what you're like, you're doing has never been done before. Yeah. What we're doing has never been done before. They've been watching a lot of Smoking the Bandit, whatever they, <laughs> it never been done. So, uh, so, you know, they have to get this, they have to the, the bring the script down. They have to cut parts out. I mean, there's a whole other part, um, at the beginning of the movie that gets severely edited of like the day-to-day on Tatooine. Yeah. Uh, which we can get which into. Which is interesting because it ends up, I think, for the best. But we do, we, we there's a bunch of scenes with like Luke and his friends yeah. and, and what life is like for Luke and, and discussions about like how Luke wants to go to the academy and he has friends, Biggs is already gone. Yeah. And all it's, this it's, stuff. It plays very much kind of like a, like a uh, American graffiti-ish kind of like the, you know, the t- what are you going to do with your life? I don't know. What am I going to do with your life? Oh, you're an idiot. You know, it's well, like, that's the thing. American you know, graffiti is pretty, very much like the night before someone's about to embark on their, their adventure, the journey yeah. of the rest of their life. Whereas uh, Star Wars is like the next day. Yeah, them doing it. You know, <laughs> is, you know it's, it's, uh, it's very much, they're very much interlinked that way. And uh, but with the brilliance of cutting all that stuff out, and it, it's another thing um, kind of attributed to that Lucas attributes to Hidden Fortress, this Carousel movie that we've brought up a few times, which is about uh, a princess in peril. You know, there's there's things about it that are certainly similar to this, but uh, you got a samurai warrior. Honestly, much more of it. The original, the episodes one through three, I think actually take more from Hidden Fortress uh, in terms of like. 
specific plot points and things than Star Wars does. But uh, aside from what we talked about with him experiencing Kurosawa, the other significant thing about Hidden Fortress specifically is the that movie opens with arguably two pretty insignificant characters. They're yeah. like our, they're like the Stooges of the movie, you know, the comic relief. Yeah, the, they're, they're the, the goofy guys. They're the uh, Abbott and Costello, the Lauren Hardy, the Fisher and Marks, you know. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, and, and, and Hidden Fortress is basically about a samurai who's to share Mifune has to take this princess through this, you know, calamity, this chaos, get her there safely to wherever the destination is. And at the same time, are being pursued and then brought along this ragtag team or these two bumbling. And that's our introduction into this world. Are these two guys at the beginning? Isn't it like, I haven't seen that Tin fortress in years, but isn't it like there's a, you know, there's a crazy murder duel at the beginning and they, that they witness. So you kind of get the right off the bat. You see how perilous the world is. They set it up and all that kind of a thing. So I, Lucas takes that idea and I was like, okay, maybe we shouldn't, maybe it would be more interesting not to start this movie with, with Luke. Yeah. Let's let's start the story and have our introduction into this world be like these two seemingly insignificant characters, these two droids. Yeah. 3PO and R2. And that is kind of the stroke of brilliance for the for the introduction of this movie. It's that like that's you know, we have this big action scene and then we follow these two characters that aren't even human I, I, we can't even understand one <laughs> I, i've heard i've heard people talk about the greater uh what, is, what are they on now eight movies or whatever maybe if you take off the, the rogue one and the force awakens because i don't remember i saw the force awakens only in the theater but i've heard now that you know people make the argument that this story is actually about r2's journey because r2 is in all what six movies or or maybe Please more and i mean he makes an appearance in rogue one but uh, well, R two said. Well, look, you know, if we if we start looking at the movie, uh, you know, there's all this stuff in casting that, you know, we we kind of hinted at. <laughs> but if we look at the like narratively, what's interesting about this uh, story is R two and the plans for the Death Star are very much the MacGuffin of yeah. this movie. It's what drives the movie. Yeah, and this message that uh, Princess Leia records and gives to R two. Is very is is like the call to action for Luke and Obi Wan. It's it's what that message and then what happens to An- Uncle Owen and Peru necessitates is, is yeah. what turns the corner from for the first act of this movie to the second act where we're now on the adventure. But R two is without a doubt like the most important character, yeah. <laughs> at least in this movie. And the brilliant thing about all these scenes they end up cutting, which you could see we can put extras in or whatever to this cast is that they're kept in, in the novelization. They're kept in, in the radio play. They're kept in, in the Marvel comics adaptation. So imagine at the time you re- you see the movie and then you're trying to digest anything you can. That's star Wars. And yeah. you're finding this stuff with other, Oh my God, there's other scenes. There's, you know, bigs, what's his light taller, whatever his name is. It's yeah, like yeah. all these different people. Did you know that there's another guy here in the comic? So I find that amazing that there's, that, you know, I guess it's because... There's Easter eggs. Yeah, you know, that unintentionally Easter eggs, you know? Yeah. So that's fun. So they go to cast this movie, and he casts basically three unknowns. He wants to. You know? He wants to cr- cast all unknowns. Yeah. And he didn't even want to cast Ford, because in his mind, I've already... Or Harrison worked, Ford, yeah. I already put Harrison Ford in a movie. He was in American Graffiti. He's not unknown enough. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's, he's testing Kurt Russell. He's 
to, uh, which Kurt Russell Harry was, King. I mean, Chris Russell was a familiar face at that point. Yeah, he, he was all coming those on Disney movies, but yeah. that's also probably one of the reasons why he didn't get the part. Yeah, uh, I, I, from what I saw the audition, I didn't think he was as powerful as Ford was, or you know. Well, or, the thing about here's the thing with Harrison Ford, and look, I'm not t- certainly not taking anything away from him. It's hard to imagine uh, Indiana Jones or Han Solo being anybody else, but basically, he doesn't. He has no intention of casting Ford, but he knows Ford. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. He knows Harrison Ford because uh, of American Graffiti, so he says, "Look, I need somebody that can read with the other actors." And supposedly, this is at the time where Ford was even thinking about stopping acting, going back into carpentry. So yeah. he was like, you know, I don't. I, maybe I can even have a career. In I this, think he so. was even like working on the lot as like a carpenter. Yeah, you know, he was he just done a, a couple things, and he's like, this isn't really panning out. He's been working since what the late sixties, and he's like, you know, I'm gonna. You know, just... He's like in his thirties by now. Yeah, he's like thirty, thirty-one. And so he says, "Look, Harrison, will you come and you read with the other actors?" So yes, we sit there and we get this, and through th- this auditioning of other actors, it's it's realize that Ford is kind of Harrison Ford is the best person for this part. Yeah. Even though we're reading everybody from, you know, Kurt Russell to, uh, Perry King to Perry King, who plays him in the radio play, uh, you know, basically everybody who who's in that age group, yeah, is being auditioned for this. And so I said, well, you know, Harrison's the best, but I I would argue not that Harrison wasn't not that Harrison Ford was not right for the part to begin with, but he also has the benefit of having read the material and performed this material multiple times, yeah, <laughs> over a period of time. You know, because he, he's read it with every he's played Han Solo against. All the people Every other actor for, coming for in Leia for Luke or, and Leia. Yeah, yeah. So he also has that benefit, yeah. you know, that he's he's been able to spend more time with the character. So when the other actors are coming in and reading, uh, they're in like, you know, what is this? Because it's like I established, like this is just like people had no idea what this was. And Lucas was. wasn't giving them that good direction. So Harrison they would go said, to Ford, like, what's going on? So he was the one who had to inform them what the backstory is because he just had sides. And he's telling, well, this is what the movie kind of is and all that. So you had a whole ton of people coming in to, to William audition. William Cat, who became the greatest American hero. Yeah, yeah. Great well, blonde the thing was that uh, De Palma was casting Carrie. Yep. And Lucas was casting Star Wars. And so what they decided to do was kind of share auditions, which you and I did. Yeah, we you did. You know, when we were in film school where we would rent a space. Well, I'm sure, I don't know if that's what they had to do, but I'm sure there was probably stuff on Fox. But instead of, you know, like we both have to read all these actors. Let's do it together so that we can kind of look at other people. So you have like William Cat who plays, who's in Carrie. You yeah. see him auditioning for uh, Luke Skywalker, Skywalker. And, and like I said, Kurt Russell. I think like Pacino audition for that movie like everybody who's kind of anybody they talk about especially women anybody any woman who was like 18 to like 23 and i Hollywood. think some people turn like i think pacino or nicholson turned it down or maybe even de niro i don't know or, but but certainly people of that age group young 20s and uh i mean everybody you know uh especially women like uh i mean there's just tons of what ifs here and uh for for the three of them and then they end up he he likes Hamill, so he, he casts Hamill. He likes um, uh, Carrie Fisher. Also, he thinks she has the gravitas because she kind of comes from a family. She's 19 years old when they make Star Wars, but she she's Hollywood royalty. She's kind of grown up with, uh, what is it, uh, Eddie Fisher and um, Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds are, his, are her parents. Uh, so she's also kind of... Because here's what you get. You got Mark Hamill needs to be... Kind of the boy next door, innocent, closed off, 
Whereas Princess Leia is the same age as Luke, but she has to be uh, worldly and have authority because she's a princess. Be able to put on an English accent a little bit when she's in situations. (laughs) And she needs to, uh, you know, she needs to have been traveled. You know, you needed someone that could to be a good foil for like the innocence of Luke Skywalker. You needed a girl who was young, but mature enough. And she talks about how she didn't, she was at a period of her life. She was 19. She wasn't even sure she wanted to be an actress. You know, obviously she came from her mom was a, is a, was a famous actor, you know, uh, you know, in one of my favorite movies of all time, singing in the rain, but in so many great films, as was her dad, her dad was doing a lot of stuff. And, uh, she wasn't even sure she wanted to be an actress, but because they were reading everybody in her age group, she got, she was given, uh, the the script the sides for Star Wars so she took her friend who's been mentioned in our podcast many times Miguel Ferrar yeah and said will you read this with me and they read it out loud and she was just like what the fuck is this movie yeah. <laughs> like I think I have to go in and audition for this because like I can't imagine how somebody's going to make this thing it's funny because he's son of legendary Jose uh, Ferrer so it's just they're they're it's that funny how they you have them all like the kids. Of the famous people hanging out together, yeah, yeah. you know they all hang out. And well, do they things. all grew up in the same yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, they're you all know? just all around going to each other's birthday parties, you know. And so uh, she decides, like, this is a good, this is a crazy thing. This is like this is gonna if he pulls this off, this is gonna be a spectacle. Like I have to go. And so she read for it, and she got it. And she really hadn't been in anything. Yeah. Um, and, and he ends up giving it to Ford because Ford is like, well, he turns out that he didn't want to, like you said, he didn't want to audition him because he was already in American Graffiti, but. He needs to be a little older. He needs to be that kind of this the pirate esque kind of have that that yeah. you know that that persona of being he could be a dick when he wants to be, but then have a saving grace, be like a have a heart underneath it all. So he sees Ford end, ends up being the best thing at the time for that. Yeah. So he casts the three of them, but then the studio is like, well, you can't cast complete unknowns, and also Francis Ford Coppola says too that like you know you can't you all, you can't cast unknown. Look what I did with the Godfather. You need to have some heavyweights in there because. People are going to want to come see it. You need to have some sort of a lore for the audience, which the studio also agrees with them. Like, you need to have somebody in here for, yeah. for you know for us to put in the billing. So they go to Sir Alec Guinness, and Alec Guinness is like, "Sure, I'll do it." You know, this sounds good. You know, and, and there's debates of if he liked it or not. But I think overall, I think he was pretty on board. Peter Cushing was like, "This is, looks sounds awesome." <laughs> You know, I love that. Cushing's just like, yeah, you know, and then they, they were even toying with Cushing maybe being the uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi part, but they thought he might look a little better as a villain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's from Hammer. Uh, David Prowse, who ends up being, um, plays Vader. Vader, he was also from the Hammer school. They cast him in, because in, in, um, in, they do England sessions, and they cast Peter Mayhew, who's just an orderly at a Yorkshire hospital, almost like the black guy from Live and Let Die, you know, the guy with the robotic arm? Yeah. He was an orderly in the 60s in, like, a hospital in New York, and then he got big and did his thing. So, you know, so it's like these people who just have, like, no- nominal jobs. Well, and, they know, needed, for Chewbacca, they needed someone that was, like, like seven, seven three, Yeah, so seven three. kind of narrows yeah. the play field. You know, you're right. And then the other kid, you know, then, then there was a real famous... Um, uh, comedian, uh, I forget what's his face. The the guy who played um, R two D two. He was a British comedian that was famous. Kenny Baker. Kenny, maybe? yeah, Kenny Baker. They needed him in there too. And then there's a lot of speculation about like voices at the time. I heard Mel Blanc auditioned for a voice uh, for CP three O. Well, when when, the, when they, when they cast, into yeah, when they cast uh, Anthony, Anthony Daniels yeah. as C three PO, there wasn't never the intention that Anthony Daniels would voice the character. Yeah, uh, they just needed someone that was lean. 
and could act, and, and he had been mime, which we talk about RoboCop. Yeah, miming. You know, having, you know, taking motion movement and mime to, you know, learn how to move the bodies in ways that, you know, people are not accustomed to. And so they cast him, and, uh, of course, he would deliver the dialogue through the mask. Yeah. Uh, almost completely inaudible on the on the audio track. But uh, their first idea was it to be like he was going to be like a used car salesman kind of, a, which is, I, you know, you I know. find that so weird because when you hear the dialogue, it doesn't, I guess they want to be like a huckster. It's hard not to, it's hard not to, it's hard to separate it from Tony Daniels yeah, to performance have, to imagine how that dialogue would be given in a different way. But uh, his idea behind it is just being like a, like almost like a proper English butler that's just yeah. really kind of uptight and, and kind of an asshole. Yeah, really. yeah, I mean, like a soonish. really kind of an asshole in this yeah. movie. <laughs> well, he becomes like what you see Sir John Gilgood. I think if that's him in Arthur, you know, it's like that kind of snooty, yeah, yeah. you know, British butler. Which, but, actually, you know, uh, you know, again through auditioning, a lot of different voice talent, and I, don't, I don't know if I ever found out who it was, but apparently, some what was at the time a pretty famous voice actor, voice talent kind of said to George who they wanted him to audition. He said, you know what? Like Tony Daniels voice is pretty good. Yeah. See, now I heard that was Mel Blank, but then when I read the Mel Blank bio, I said he never auditioned for anything in his life. So I don't know, you know, after, after yeah. getting, you know, he never had to audition again, yeah. but I could see him being like, you know, I don't, why would you, this is perfect. <laughs> so just they ended up them. just having Anthony you know, Daniels which voice is, it. And it's funny when you watch the outtakes, of Peter Mayhew, David Prowse, and everybody on set since they shot it at Elchery Studios. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious to see these real, like, you know, fucking yeah, Peter Mayhew, well, like, you know, he's off his rocker. You know, like, yeah, These yeah. really cockney accents and stuff like that. Well, it's also funny because you never would have thought about it till you watch some of the behind-the-scenes footage that you're talking about. But that, like, uh, that, like, Peter Mayhew, you'd never, he's actually saying dialogue. Yeah. You know, he says he he's they're having conversations like he's having, translating like Chewbacca had written dialogue that Peter Mayhew was delivering so that when Harrison Ford was talking to he him, answer back, <laughs> you know, it you was know. like an actual dialogue scene. And it's just something that like as a as a viewer, even one that went to film school or whatever, like it never occurred to me that like, oh, that makes total well, sense. Even in but the, I never would have imagined in that. that Jedi special where that they end up showing with the, you know, the job of uh, job of the hut had dialogue that they yeah, end up yeah. turning into. You know, this stuff. But and at least that's like, at least Jabba is subtitled. Yeah, okay, yeah. You right, know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas Chewbacca, you just never It's know. like R2. Because R2 originally was supposed to be speaking English or stuff that we'd understand, but he was going to be just cursing all the time. And then they turned it to sounds, but evidently he's still cursing in sounds. He supposedly got like a potty mouth and he's saying all this. He's like, fuck her. You know, <laughs> all this stuff. And, you know, that's why it's always, you know. And uh, I find their relationship pretty funny, R2 and, and CP3O, because at that point when they get mad, CP3O just kicks them. It's like, you know, it's really like a, almost like an abusive kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and then poor, you get David Prowse here, who gets who gets cast as Vader. Who was like an English bodybuilder. Who yeah. Who played like the monster. And, and a lot of Hammer that, stuff. Hammer movie. And it's like he thought he was going to, that was going to be his voice. So he's like, you know, performing his heart out. Like, you know, if this is a council of vessel, who the fuck? And he would want to do takes again. Yeah. Because he, he screwed up the lines. And they were like, sure. And I don't know. Who know? I mean, I would think at the time they knew that they weren't going to use his voice. But he never knew that, so that you know they were thinking about who to cast. You know, and that was the idea of we need to get somebody who has an awesome voice. And they thought of Orson Welles, and I thought that would have been an awesome having Orson Welles do it. But they thought he'd be too recognizable, so they went with um, 
uh, James Earl Jones. But then I there's also rumors. He spoke since, at our graduation. He did speak at our graduation. And he um, said, "May the force be with you." And everybody <laughs> went ape shit at the end of that. Remember, imagine that. Uh, and then it was weird because I don't. They say he was wasn't billed on purpose because he was worried about at the time. Uh, you know that this this movie was it was like even they went to uh, to Shira Mafuni and they asked him they wanted him to be Ben Kenobi. Supposedly, Toshiro Mifune had such esteem in the samurai subculture over in Japan. Since sci-fi wasn't highly regarded at the time, he was worried that would, you know, kind of bring diminishes. Well, I think this is all pretty important stuff to talk about, and we're kind of starting to run out of time here. Um, But I think that's, like, this was like the little film that could, really. I mean, they shot this, you know, in a lot of places. Some of the outdoor stuff is in Tunisia, but for the most part, they saw it at at Elstree Studios. Yeah, Elstree Studios, the the sets. outside, Outside of London. And uh, you had a very proper, you know, British Union crew. Yeah, ain't gonna take no shit. We're done at five thirty, and you know, unless would, we're in the middle of a take. Yeah, tea time. We're breaking at lunch. You know, to have lunch, and uh, and they've got this crazy movie. Like, yeah, I, like I can't stress it enough. Like it's hard to imagine that, like this. Not knowing what this was, and everyone was like, "This is a stupid kids movie." Yeah, they didn't even understand it, and the crew fucking thought it was gonna was thought it was shit yeah. the, the actors were like I, I, we're along for the ride we're giving it our all but who knows yeah. like this is wild and yeah and Guinness there's there's letters Guinness wrote where it's like it's a good you know I'm doing it because it's a good you know it's good money whatever but I don't know if this is and then they talk about how one how kind of a bad director Coppola Coppola uh, Lucas was tor- for the actors because he since he's kind of not really a personable person he really couldn't distinguish giving them direction between takes. Also, their dialogue he wrote was kind of so, I wouldn't say bad, but just foreboding that they were like, what the crap is this shit you're yeah, having yeah. me spiel? So they they kind of improvised stuff to a certain extent to get it conversational to sound good, but yeah. then he wouldn't give them any help between takes. Well, Lucas just, is not, he just wasn't an actor's director. Yeah, which he is, was like, it's all right, it's on the page. Just do it the way I wrote it. Yeah. And that's not the way actors work. Yeah, yeah. They're like, we need, <laughs> we need, you know, what's my motivation or whatever, you know, so they, so they would all have to, you know, kind of utilize themselves. And at the same time, you know, he's working with a, you know, a limited budget on this giant spectacle. Uh, he's got a crew that doesn't like the picture, doesn't respect him as a director. You have a, Gilbert Taylor, who's the DP. Yeah, who did a lot of big stuff. Who had done... Uh, 2001. He had done uh, Doctor Strangelove and, he, and Frenzy. So he had worked with uh, Kubrick and Hitchcock. Did he do A Hard Day's Night, too? I th- He might have done A Hard Day's Night, but he did... Uh, he had worked with, by the time he had done, he did Hard Days Night, but at the time he had worked with on Star Wars, he had worked with Kubrick, he had worked with Polanski, he had worked with Hitchcock, and I think he had uh, done the, the Omen. So I mean, this was like so he was you know, and Lucas was and he's coming, older, he's significantly older, and Lucas is coming from you know documentary film like a documentary low budget style, low budget, hands on American, and he'd be and Lucas would be like, do this. Try to, and he try would to be light. like, "No, you tell me what you you tell me what you want it to look like, and I'll do it." Whereas Lucas would be like, "Move the camera there, put the light here," and there's just there's a lot of and you get conflict. The, you get that a lot. I've noticed working in television where you know I work at a place that's non-union, but every place else in New York City is union. And if we used to go to places for traveling for news, if you know if we're going to like cover a debate or an election cycle, you get into these union shops and this is how it was. You can't touch anything. They'd have to run cable, whatever. So you can imagine over say in England with these union shops, 
and having these people who are completely, you know, they're, they're used to this certain set of rules. You can't touch this. You can't touch that. So if he's coming in and starting to move a light or put a light up and move a camera, the guys are like, no, this is our job. You just tell us what you want. And then we'll, you know, from there, make the distinct, you know, the delineation of what you want. So I could see it be maddening there. And then with Lucas kind of like losing his mind where he's not being a good communicator to his actors. He's having issues at home with the financing. There are no special effects being made. Uh, I mean, yet. basically he had, I don't know. I don't know how many days he had in Tunisia to shoot all the outside stuff in yeah. the desert. But he only got half of what he needed. Yeah, and it, stuff wasn't... As soon as they got there, stuff wasn't working. It was falling apart. There was malfunctions. Yeah, the, the, they had a rainstorm. 3PO's suit wasn't working. R2 couldn't, wouldn't work. They had a rainstorm where things were stuck in mud. It was the first time in 50 years that Tunisia <laughs> uh, had that significant amount of rain. So, you know, it, it ended up being this crazy... But know, he couldn't go behind schedule because it was so early on in the production. He was afraid if he went on, if he went behind schedule that they would just shut it down. Yeah. So he, they just said, "We'll do it in reshoots later." Like I'm not going to worry about it. Like I only got half of what I need, but we can't spend more time here because that's going to tell the, f- the studios that we're not getting what we need. Yeah. So then they would go to England and do. <laughs> so all then the... they just abandoned Tunisia. They went and just continued forward. Yeah. They were thinking about originally having Tatooine being a jungle, but he was like, "I can't go see myself going down into a jungle environment," and so they turned it into North Africa. Then when they're done there, they go to. Uh, to Elstree Studios outside of London, and they make nine sound stages with uh, huge sets, uh, and the Millennium Falcon set being the biggest set, and you know it's, and they're trying to do stuff there, and it's just it's so funny how just you know when you look at the behind the scenes stuff where it's just basically, you know like they're sitting in the Millennium Falcon and there's just guys with two by fours moving it around, <laughs> and that's how you get the bumps and the movements like that, you know, and the problems he was having there. With- now, I think what's interesting, and I, I don't know if lucas knows this or if he did it on purpose or if he even knows that he did it subconsciously but there's st- i find interesting that like you know the way when this when the millennium falcon goes to hyperspace yeah and the way the stars shoot at yeah. you carpenter did that in dark star yeah and i wonder if he if it was saw that because i mean carpenter went to usc i wonder if it was one of the people he's working with there at L- uh, ilm seeing that and then they showed it to him. He's like, that's great. Use I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he might have been. You know? It's interesting to think. And there's a couple of things in Dark Star that Carpenter did in the early 70s. Carpenter graduated from U.S., left USC a few years after Lucas did. But Lucas being an alumni, Lucas being the big success story with American Graffiti. And, uh, you know, I wonder if he, you know, was an. You know, just roped in there. I just wonder if it's if there's any like direct influence or just if that's a certain you know a coincidence. Yeah, uh, and then he's bouncing around doing stuff at the Elstree Studios in England, and then they end up doing some stuff in in back at California. And, uh, and they shoot the because they didn't get all the desert stuff they needed. All the stuff with like Obi Wan and the Tuscan Raiders and all that stuff was shot in Monument Valley. As reshoots. Yeah. So even though he basically Lucas was like told Fox, I need $13 million to make the movie. They're like, we'll give you $8 million. When all of a sudden done, he spent $13 million. Yeah. It cost about 11, 12 million to make. He, he ends up doing it all. And then, uh, you know, he's having such a hard time with, with dealing with all this different stuff there. And, you know, they've, they've got skunk, stunt coordinators and, uh, you know, they having people, they don't have enough enough money to have people uh, having stunt doubles, so they have a lot of times, like, you know... Uh, Mark and Carrie yeah, doing their own swinging. Doing their own stuff, or, the, you know, Harrison Ford doing his own stuff, you know, so it's just... 
it's it's very unforgiving to just think about all this stuff that he had to go through and all this stuff you know to, to get all this stuff done and um yeah a lot of it is just you know i think the believability of like you get the, the prowess of you have like uh Sir John Gilgood being like a knight, you know, and you know, I I, I heard early things of him saying like he, you know he was a, he was a knight playing a knight, the knightly order, and then coming on and being this kind of presence, and then I think he was a calming force on set for these people. He'd always come to. Oh, you mean Alec Guinness? What did I say? John Gilgood. So not John Gilgood. I had him on the mind from um, Arthur. Yeah, Sir Alec Guinness. Yeah. So you have him on the set being a calm, calm, always prepared, you know, always knew his lines, wasn't you know. T- you know, taking the piss and making fun of stuff. Yeah, I yeah. think the same thing with Peter Cushing when they were doing stuff with the Death Star stuff. They said his boots. Well, were... this time, you know, they're working in Britain. Yeah. So having like respected British actors on set, like all like these fucking crewmen that were shit on the movie. Oh, they didn't, didn't, didn't give a shit. They they behaved themselves when uh, Guinness or Cushing were on set. The actors, yeah, you know, who were. A little bit mischievous. Well, they, yeah, because they, they were always waiting around. Yeah, so they would end the up. Think about a special more... effects movies. There's a lot sitting around waiting to act. <laughs> yeah, lot, 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 hurrying up to uh, hurrying up to wait, you know, or waiting around to wait. So it's like, yeah, so they were a little more, uh, you know, prestigious with him. And I like the thing with Cushing that they said his boots hurt, so he would just wear his fluffy slippers around in these takes. So it's you know, just think of and him and Carrie Fisher got on very well. And I found it funny when they're talking, she puts on her, her an accent, kind of comes yeah, out. She yeah. starts saying things in this. In this kind of a way, but the whole plot moves. It's interesting, and what they end up cutting out. Well, I think that you know, it, it really, I think, then gets you going. You know, and keeps the you know the plot rolling. Well, I think you know the accent for for Princess Leia. I think you know she's leading a dual life. Leia Organa. Yeah, I mean she's. Organa. You know, she's like you know Kevin Conroy from Batman, yeah. voicing Batman, like well Bruce Wayne, and then Bruce and then Batman. You know, like she. She's trying to. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about the rebellion. I'm yeah. not a. I'm not a rebel. Like I'm a. I. You know. I'm, I'm a part of the diplomatic whatever. Which is also I'm on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan. Like I'm a proper princess. I don't know anything about this. And, and you've taken me captive. And that's all stuff that I found was amazingly fleshed out in the radio drama where they invented scenes to give all that a backstory. You know. Yeah. yeah. In there. I mean, and then especially, if I never really realized that, you know, um, God rest her soul. I mean, it's going to be a year that she passed away. She decided she passed away December 27th, that's 2016, and her mother the next day, 20, the 28th. But Carrie Fisher, um, you know, at the time, she had a really amazing body on her. <laughs> yes. And they really went to, I mean, you think about which way they could have went. Yeah, yeah. They could have really utilized that and did like a Barbarella kind of a thing where you are really emphasizing yeah. like some of the early posters do. Mm-hmm. But they, but what... What's his face wanted to? Because since um, uh, they're making the active choice, Lucas is saying, "I want it to be a kid's kind of a movie. Yeah. I don't want jingling and jangling the audience looking at her breasts going up and down." That they decide, as he says, "There's no underwear in space." You know, I want everything taped. So he has her gaff. Well, taped, well, evil, well first know. he says, "There's no underwear because you can see it through the white." Yeah. Thing. So then she's running around set and she's jiggling all over the place. And he's like, okay. And, and that's so, what I mean. She, you know, <laughs> so then they have to gaff her down. They, every day they're gaff taping her down so you can't see anything. And then and, and she's in one costume the entire movie, which is not really, it doesn't really accentuate the body per se. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. that one shot where she's laying kind of seductively when, the, yeah. when Luke comes in as the stormtrooper. But aside from that, it's very innocuous. You, know, you can't really tell where I think if you had another director in there who wanted to sex it up a little bit you could have very sure, easily yeah. you know with the body well, she you know, had when she passed away i mean that was the first thing that came to mind was like this was 
an entire generation, maybe two or three generations, first crush was Princess yeah. Leia. <laughs> you know, like so many boys fell in love with Princess Leia. And then Leia. They, they joke about because of the restrictions of her only having one costume, basically until the end scene at the uh, ceremony. But as that for the like the the sins of Lucas, then for three, that's the reason why he gave everyone her and the like the you know the yeah the the uh, the bikini the metal bikini. Story wise, uh. It's a genre that I love and I don't certainly don't see enough of now, in my opinion, is the kid on an adventure. Yeah. You know, much like we've uh, we've done with Last Starfighter, Flight of the Navigator, you know, movies like Goonies or Explorers. You know, this is a story as a coming of age story about this farm boy who dreams of something more who uh, in subconsciously he thought his dad was just like a spice runner yeah subconsciously you know? no you know like in his soul and wherever the force comes from in his metachlorians <laughs> yeah he knows that he's destined for something else yeah than this and uncle and uncle owen and aunt Brew, they know it too and uncle owen's trying his hardest uh you know there's the shot where luke walks out and the setting suns. Oh, and then the music comes up and John Wayne's um, score. You know, it's it, it to this day gives me goosebumps yeah. because the music. I mean, John, we you know, obviously we have to talk a little bit about John Williams, but like that shot is it's a boy looking for more, and that's you know, it's a it's so it's this coming of age story f- for Luke, and it's you know, kind of the boy on the ultimate adventure, and we talk a lot about it. When we did Karate Kid, because I because the relationship between Obi Wan and between uh, Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker is very similar to Daniel Russo and Mr. Miyagi, you know. Uh, and what's interesting structural wise is that this is the be- we're in the middle of Leia's story. Yeah. We come in in the middle of Leia's story, but at the same time we're coming in at the beginning of Luke's story. Yeah. So there's all this history about what's happened, and that now some of it with Rogue One has been kind of exp- you know explained in in a new way. Who knows? And that's what Disney did because Disney before Disney had it, they evidently everything the radio play, the comics, the novelizations were all canon. And then when Disney bought the property in 2012, around 2014, they said the only thing they're going to keep canon are the movies and the cartoons, of course, because they own one of the cartoons. Yeah. And then everything else is like what they call the expanded universe. So that's how they kind of re-muffle Rogue One a little bit to change it from how they make up in the radio play the backstory behind it, everything there. Now, watching it this time, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, mm-hmm. and I think most people look at Vader as being like the badass of the of the galaxy, right? But looking at it this time, like I thought, I felt like Vader was a pretty like pathetic character. You know, I don't know if it's now in the context of you know other movies or what, but if you look at like Vader now, he's like, you know, like you know, she walks in, Leia walks, she's like, oh, Tarkin, you know, I should have known that you held Vader's leech. Like, like, like Vader's just like the, a lackey. Well, Vader's Joshua he, from uh, Lethal Weapon, you know? He's, I mean, he's just, he's the right-hand man. To but tra- he's, you know. to, he's, he's, you know, obviously he's Palpatine's, like, you know, apprentice uh, for the dark side. But he's not even, like, on equal footing as Peter Cushing. Like, Peter Cushing's like his boss. Yeah, but I and, think he... And nobody, and the other guys... The other bureaucrats, they're all, they're all laughing at him. They're all like, 
Like, oh, Vader with your stupid bullshit religion. Yeah, but I think that I, I think that that he, I think he's loyal to Tarkin, which gives a lot about his character. He's not looking to like be like Maximilian from the black hole and like take over whenever he could, you know. And also, you know, they they laugh at him, but they fear him because of this, you know, mystical yeah. wizard voodoo, you know. And as soon as Tarkin is killed doesn't he assume that command and he now becomes he gets that i know but in this movie yeah like, he's really he's just like he's he's, low, he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty low on the run <laughs> well he's he's basically the like uh he's the force he's like the uh you know what do you call that he's the enforcer in, yeah. in this thing you know so i guess he is low like he's the head of like fuck shit up you know he's the, <laughs> you know he's the logistics I know, but i just felt like you know I find him more to be just... It's interesting because you don't know his past. Yeah. You he, know, in this one. You he, don't know who he is. And then, like, they said that the reason why Macquarie came up with even how he looked was just because the, he wanted to have a reasoning for him to be able to get from one ship to the other. So he has this suit just because it'd be a space suit to be able to breathe in space. And then it wasn't until later on that they realized, oh, maybe we can have something going on underneath that he needs to have this yeah. labored breath and all that. I just thought it was very interesting watching it this time around because I never really looked at it with these eyes. But it's like, yeah, he's not, you know, he's almost like, I don't know, I almost felt bad for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, you know, he's... He's got his orders, but he's he's not like the big like villain that I kind of thought of him as being when I was a kid. Well, he's certainly subservient to Peter Cushing, but yeah, then I yeah. guess once once Peter Cushing's taken out of the way, he he grabs the reins. But like, we how but we don't know what happens yeah, in the next movie. I know I don't know what's going to happen. I just I want to <laughs> so know. You, you and I are just going. Yeah, we're going on some this research about the backstory yeah. that we found. I mean, for and, all we know, I want to know what happens. Is <laughs> is Leia going to end up with Luke, or is she going to end up with Han? I don't even know what's going to happen. But so I just thought that was interesting. You know? uh, and we we know that there's a connection that we know that that Vader knew. Um, his father he was an Obi-Wan and, and Anakin and he, and he killed Anna he killed Luke's father somehow so uh, you know we gotta figure out how that gets resolved <laughs> but I just you know? was like huh like you know he does kind of like he doesn't have the respect of the rest of the of the rest of the well, people I guess working because, on the Death Star which is interesting because you have the force and he has he uh, he's a just, relic well yeah because it's explained through what is it uh, either uh, and, uh, and, uh, Uncle Owen and as through Ben Kenobi, that doesn't Vader killed all the Jedi? You know that he's—they're the only ones left. And yeah. what's his face is living in seclusion. Um, cool. Obi Obi Wan. Yeah. You know he's—he's he's not even—he's like screw it. I don't even want to be a part of this. So yeah, you might have an entire generation or two who've grown out of this who have not—you know—they're like oh fuck <laughs> fuck that voodoo bullshit. And Vader's like no, this stuff still works. You now, know. Now one thing I wanted—I do want to mention before we uh, wrap before we go. Go into Act Three of the, of this as we wrap it up is the, the the long debate of the Kessel Run being made in less than twelve parsecs. Okay, because everybody's like, well, parsecs is distance; it's not speed. So what does that matter? Who knew? And because uh, always been like he because you know he's like, is it fast? And Han's like, oh, you never heard of the Millennium of the Falcon? I've made the Kessel Run in twelve in less than twelve parsecs, and, and that, it's all uh, he's a smuggler, and, and we learn he's a spice smuggler per se, and isn't. Is Kessel, isn't that like the Spice World or whatever? Well, now what the, you know, I don't know if Lucas made this up. Hindsight. You yeah. know, being like, all right, let me explain it to you people so that you get off my back about this question. Excuse me, Mr. Lucas. <laughs> he actually, did he actually even entertain this question? He has, the, he says, the way hyperspace works. Yeah. Is, you know, hyperspace is 
you know, like everybody's going hyperspace. They're all going hyperspace. So the way distance works is the nav computer and speed is distance. It's how how can you can you do can you get from one place to another with the least within the straightest line possible without That's, hitting you don't want to hit a planet yeah so it's the way you know han uh chewy and the nav computer compute the destination that's what's fast, which makes the Millennium Falcon fast. It's not that its hyperdrive is faster than the Imperial hyperdrive. Yeah, it's that the Millennium Falcon can compute the 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 the, sh- the shortest distance <laughs> distance between two points, and that's why it's significant that it makes the Kessel Run in less than twelve parsecs. Interesting. It's a di- it does it in a shorter amount of distance than other ships can do it. We also learn from the backstory here that Chewbacca is two hundred years old. And that's something I never, they don't really put into the mm. final movie. Mmm, <laughs> he is it, you say. <laughs> well, um, just told you become. Yeah, you are old as fuck, you say you are. Um, so, you know, maybe that's, you know, he's, he's, he's been navigating for a long time. But there was a funny thing I was thinking, you know I mean? I was thinking about. So he knows his <laughs> protractor pretty well. Like, you know, when they're hiding under the floor. Yeah. And the, you know, they leave, yeah, the, yeah. the stormtroopers leave the Falcon and then they come up out of the, I never thought I'd be smuggling myself through this shit. Uh, and then, Chewie puts up his head yeah. and like kind of like scratches his head, like pats him on the head. I was like, I was thinking like that'd be like if you and I were hiding someplace and I got out and you stuck up your head and I like patted you. On the head. Well, maybe it's just maybe that's in their culture, you know. <laughs> you know, like cause we are, I think we're predisposed to think of Chewie as being, you know, like pet, like, like slash a dog. partner. Yeah, he's like, he's but like he's a, really his partner. Yeah, he's partner in crime. And the fact that, that he doesn't get in a medal at the end of the movie. Well, you know, I've seen. Have you ever seen the footage at the end of the movie where it's pretty funny? They've they've had it now where you have the uh, they've taken out all the music. Have you seen that? No. Oh my god, it's it's one of the funniest things you've ever seen because they take all the lavish music out, and it's just a quiet. So it's just like, (coughs) (laughs) and then you have like, you know, and it's just and it's two minutes of just. <laughs> but uh, quickly, I think we do. I I just have to mention uh, that to me, John Williams's score makes this movie. Like this movie would, you know, as beautiful and the effects and everything, and Ben Burtt's sound design, blah blah blah, everything. Like what what Williams does, Williams' brilliance. Because people will be like, Lewis Williams stole this from this composer. I've heard that so, a lot. Yeah. He steals everything. What Williams does is the, what Lucas did, which is. You know, Lucas took all the mythology and religion and and stuck everything in one thing and cleaned it up and made it you know accessible to everybody. Uh, that's exactly what Williams does. He takes all familiar motifs. Well, that's what they said. And is able to distill them into it. Yeah, they said they because there was going to be such an outlandish story. You needed the emotional familiarity. So they needed to have it have a score. And then at the time, that was in the 70s, people weren't doing uh, symphonic traditional scores. Yeah. So to have it scored by a symphony, they're like, that's stupid. You know, you have synthesizers. Synthesizer. Yeah, it's, 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 it's science know? fiction. You have synthesizers. You, you know, the do, same year we have Sorcerer with the uh, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, you know, so you ha- you can do whatever you want. And instead, they thought that it'd be more... more it adds gravity. It, there's, gives, it lends gravitas. To and it helps the audience about. connect more because you have this... You know, you you understand what this lush you know arrangement means for you know love or and you're right. You know, if you take that, so, it's probably not half as good if you take that soundtrack out of there. You know, it's uh, well, not even close. I you mean, the, the melodies that he uses, the Leia's theme, 
and you stuff you end up seeing too, in like Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that kind of you know, thing. You know, Carpenter talks about uh, Williams as being like the master of Mickey Mousing. He talks about there's you know you have scores that tell you exactly what to think, when to think, and then Carpenter what he does is kind of underscore things. Yeah, which is like it just creates a bed underneath. Whereas like Williams is like you know <laughs> it's true <laughs> hitting I mean, you over the head with stuff. He'll tell you when to you know oh this is the romantic part and you're but like, oh, it's you know. so gorgeous and this score it's effective gives me goosebumps. Yeah, listening to it. It's like the Rocky score for me, where it's like I'm. It's so connected to me in my mind that like I it it con- I could listen to it and it conjures the feelings of the movie for me. Yeah, and that's like the beautiful thing about film music, and it works so well for this movie. Uh, it really does add kind of depth and uh, credibility. Yeah, to this to this movie, it's, it really ties it's, it's the room Williams. together. The whole thing, and the other part of this too is the idea that. Uh, Lucas with the marketing because they weren't really going to market this film and this is where this well that's what Lucas said uh, signed a deal with Fox he said okay I'll take less money but you give me the rights to the movies yep so that I can make this in his mind so I can make the sequels if I want to make the sequels and you let me market the movie and, and merchandise the and, and do everything because you're not going to do it no and this movie's not just going to succeed so he does a lot of things that were kind of unheard of, like marking the movie at comic and science fiction conventions in the 70s. Yeah, they get that guy. Going to the fans. Uh, what's his name? Lippincott, Lippincott or whatever his name is. They get him on, They he jumps on board. They hire him as a, uh, as like the merchandising person. Maybe James or Charles Lippincott, I Charles. think is it? Charles Lippincott. And he goes on this huge campaign of, cause, and he's a sci-fi fan. They get... Uh, they they go to the sci-fi conventions at the time and pump it up. They go to Kenner Toys and Kenner Toys is like you know we could try to do some stuff for you. They they start doing other kind of they think all out of the they he goes to Marvel and supposedly at the time Stan Lee with Marvel's that's struggling. He secures them doing a comic adaptation. They go to Del Rey Books and they say will you do a novelization? So they have all this stuff and they're working off of earlier scripts and supposedly the because um, it's important to note that the novelization comes out comes out like the November before before the movie comes yeah, out. yeah and that's and they say it's George Lucas wrote it but it's the movie comes out May twenty fifth nineteen seventy seven so it was November- slated for Christmas to, uh, but they were so behind with the, seed, the all the practical the, you know the special effects and all that, they had to delay it till May and they had to re edit the movie which is another story. Uh, but they, so, but so they released this novelization in November of seventy six. Yeah, which is ghost written by Alan Dean Foster, who we talk about all the time. A few, a huge does novelizations at the Black Hole. There's all these kind of novelizations, but it's based off of George Lucas's script, and that's why you have a lot of the, the stuff that's kept that was kept in that you see that's in the novelization in the Marvel, including thing. a prologue uh, that becomes the basis of the episodes one through three. Yes, of all of everything that's going on and all that, which is the, you know, setting like the up like the government stuff and. Uh, all that stuff. And then, you know, when the movie comes out, there's not even, you know, you have some t-shirts and stuff like in posters and stuff, but then they're not really prepared for the merchandization, merchandization, (laughs) I don't even know if that's even a fucking word. So they have to like, Kenner is like, can't even exceed these orders. So there's that famous uh, 19, yeah, yeah, Christmas, they sell you just an empty box in in Christmas time. Promise you cardboard. Promise you the figures when they come out. Yeah, you're going to get it between February and June in 78, you'll get these things and it's, it's all this, they uh, sold a box. Yeah, it's just, it's just an empty box with cardboard figures and pictures and you're going to get it and kids, that was the hottest item in the world and kids got it. Uh, And, and, you know, and then, and then, then subsequently they ended up, you know, doing this. Uh, It's also interesting to note too that the, uh, 
film fans were, were, were queried, and evidently the lightsaber is the most popular weapon of all time in any movie. Is the, is the lightsaber? It's, you know. Well, he just managed to capture the imagination. I mean, like we said, it was kind of lightning in a bottle. All those things we talked about came together, but at the same time, he he created a canvas. Like I said, that you know, a blank enough canvas that our allowed our imaginations to run wild. And to just put a lot of cool shit in it. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it was just fucking cool. He had a lot of things going for it. I mean, one, because of the merchandization, merchandisation, that he was able to make a crap load of money because this, this, this made the, this was the movie that made the whole idea of having comic book movie. TV show, uh, toy adaptations, holiday successful. special, holiday specials, anything, pajamas. This was it. So he's get he's printing cereal, money breakfast like that. Cereal, breakfast cereals, which we ate some old breakfast cereal for Batman. Out of Batman, <laughs> you have all that going on. And then he is re-releasing this damn thing every six months. Yeah. So up until like 1980. So for the next three years, either it's not leaving the theater. Or movies are, it's getting re-released, re-released, re-released. So he's still cashing that in. So like you said, by the time he gets to Empire, he's able to... <laughs> well, he decides he wants that. to make Empire. And he decides because he was fed up with, with Fox. Yeah. That he was like, I'm going to finance this shit myself. He becomes an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Empire Strikes Back is an independent movie. Yeah. You think about indie cinemas being clerks. Yeah, yeah, and all that kind of <laughs> shit. He, he does it back <laughs> he then. Makes Empire Strikes Back is an indie film, and he finances it himself through bank loans and stuff. And uh, When did that come out? 80? Maybe, I yeah, think. Yeah, 80, 80. It's and either it's 80 not until or 81. the re-release in 79. That but he, he, because he knows it's coming up, yeah. he's got to keep everybody excited about Star Wars. So that's Wars. why we got this on TV. We get the Star Wars holiday special. We get that's, the re-releases yeah. in the theaters. And then in, in, in the re-release in 79, right before Empire, is when they tack on Episode Four, The New Hope. And then they change, I think, one of the lines in the scroll to Rebel. Uh, and the comic book series runs from 1977 to 1986. Yeah, there's about 176 or something issues. I read the first 20 in the first six or an adaptation. Because what it's awesome is it it branches what's happening in between the movies. Yeah. So you have like the first six are the uh, the the like novelization or the comic bookization of the movie. Then after that, it turns into like a Seven Samurai. There's like a rabbit that you follow along and you do like a story of like a Seven Samurai helping this town. And then it gets into like uh, other great robots and people like that that you, you, you see up in it. And I mean, it's just such a, a great idea of him doing all these different things to, to put it in and have it all work. And I think that's the reason why that you have this, he's writing these these blank checks over and over again. Well, it's the thing is, you know, he gets the Star Wars and he hits the Empire Strikes Back and he's like, I'm... I got all this other shit going on. Like I'm trying to... I'm trying to make this movie. Like yeah. I, it's independently... I don't have time yes. to direct it and make sure that we have the funding and sell merchandise. So that's why he gives it to, what's his face? So he gives it to uh, one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, his name's escaping me. It's, what's his face? Irvin Kershner. Irvin Kershner, yeah. Irvin Kershner, who is, my in my opinion, the greatest sequel director of all time, because he not only does this, but he does RoboCop 2. Yeah, I know you which, love RoboCop 2. I, I love these RoboCop You have a huge <laughs> affinity for RoboCop 2. But he also had directed... Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars, yeah, which was based on a John Carpenter script, yeah, which is you know a, a movie we hold near and dear to our hearts. Um, and then also for this, we listened to the Star Wars radio play for this, which came out in 1981, I think we said. Uh -huh. And the great thing there was that radio's dying at the time, and uh, 
you know, they're, uh, they're, they're trying to come up with an idea of like how to reinvigorate radio. And they're like, one of the students who's just like uh, at the college uh, in Southern California is like, Hey, why don't you turn this, turn Star Wars into a radio adaptation? They're like, that's stupid. You can never get that. That's poppycock. (laughs) But then they go to George Lucas and he says, yeah, not only will you could do it, I'll send, I'll sell you the rights for a dollar and you can use all the sound effects and music for free. Yeah. So that's great. But then they're like, well, it's still going to cost us $100,000. How are we going to cast? And but So they talk to BBC because he sells it to the local affiliate. His uh, Southern California's, the his alma mater, um, Lucas, they sell it to the, the local affiliate radio, radio station to NPR. And then they're like, well, we're still not going to be able to do it here. So they get BBC. The BBC says, we'll fund it for you if you just give us the syndication rights to syndicate it. Yeah. So they end up doing a 13-episode, turns out to be four, four hours Jesus, it's like 30, I don't know, it's over four and a half hours, uh, and uh, we listened to it for, for backstory for this, and it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. You have Mark Hamill comes, Anthony uh, Daniels comes, you have Perry King come to do Han Solo, because at the time, uh, Ford is shooting uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have Brock Peters comes and steps in to do... Um, uh, what's his face? Vader. Uh, Vader. And, and then Brock Peters, we know from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. He's also in, in Star Trek movies. He's in Star Trek movies. He made an appearance on our special this year. Uh, he did the Star War. He was in the Spider-Man episode because he voiced the uh, Kingpin in the Spider-Man cartoon we talked about. You have Bernard Barons plays Ben, who people will know as a big character actor. And we've already mentioned, I mean, Peter Cushing's guest starred on our show before as Hammer on the Mummy. We had Sir Alec Guinness this year already because we did Raise the Titanic and he cameos in that, which might even be the same year as this. 78, 77, 78, 79. But listening to this, uh, the, the, the radio special, I got to say, like, I was digging Brock Peters as, I don't know if this yeah. is a sacrilege, as much or if not better as Vader because for me I always thought like in this movie Vader's like kicking down doors he's screaming yelling that opening dialogue with you know he's yelling like this is a counselorship where the fuck is the fuck you know he's like don't be but I liked in that particular scene I liked Brock Peters' version a lot better he's very calmer he's really you know he's a lot cooler and then there's there's a lot of scenes in in the uh, radio play that are not, we have the, all the yeah. stuff with Briggs because on Tatooine. Because it's 13 episodes, you and can, each episode kind of focuses on a different storyline, you get a lot of like parallel action. Yeah, I mean, you see. have the first two episodes in the radio play take place before the movie even starts. So part three of the episode, uh, part three of the radio play is like the beginning of the movie. So you have all the stuff with Briggs and all them on Tatooine and the backstory, what's happening about why they're his land, they have to use the land speeder, the family land speeder, because he messed up his star hopper, whatever you call yeah, his yeah. his thing. Uh, but the scene and then there's a there's a scene that they they're right because they um they get what's his face uh very famous american sci-fi novelist brian uh daly to come in and condense lucas's vision and then make a 13-part episode to have it play for radio which he does a phenomenal job with and uh he has to invent scenes so he invents the whole scene about on Alderaan uh, with Leia and her father and then bring in this guy who's like fancies who's part of the yeah, he's yeah. part of the uh, Empire, Empire and, on, and then they end up accidentally killing him you and notice then, that there's you know, the, there's the scene uh, that's kind of you can tell it's kind of the scene that got that's cut out of Star Wars where Jabba from yeah with Heater yeah yeah and you ever notice that Heater's doing like a James Mason yeah he's, he's like, going on we're gonna do this this way yeah. <laughs> well you have Jabba the Hutt's and then he, they even since it's 1980 they 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 name check uh, Boba Fett and that yeah um 
you have yeah, Job of the Hut isn't in that, but they have a guy heater go and confront. Which basically has it's kind of like a, an adaptation of that scene, the deleted scene the delete, that's now in the yeah, which we didn't talk hunt. about, but originally, which was a great idea, was that they they were going to have that scene that we all know from the re-releases, but it was going to be that he was going to, I guess, not he never had the idea of using that actor. Yeah, that they were going to rotoscope some sort of stop motion or something over him, which I thought would have been cool if they were able to do it. But yeah. because he was running out of a budget and money near the end and he was, he was over, they were behind schedule. They had to just delete that whole scene. So that would have been really cool if they had that yeah. to fruition. So they include that in this radio but, play. But instead of Jabba, it's this other character. Yeah. Heater. He's called. But, he but he's like, Oh, Han, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah, he's like, Hello, Han. <laughs> Darth Vader is looking for you, Han. And so is Jabba the Hutt. Um, so you have that in it. And then you have, you know, we said there's, there's some other invented scenes. There's a great invented scene where there's another person on the ship who is, um, trying to get um, General, what's his name? Targan? Tala? Uh, yeah, Grand Mall Targan. Or yeah, they're trying to, he's trying to get him to use the Death Star as a bargaining chip against the Empire. Like, you know, you shouldn't give this up because you can use this to your benefit. And he's like, you think I should? So there's that scene they have made up. There's a scene where they're like, you know, should we, you know, the ship is going down, sir. Should we ready your dis- distress? And then in the movie, they have Peter Christian like, I'm not, I don't need no, don't, life pod, slife <laughs> that's pod. Bobby. Yeah, that's Bobby. I don't need that. <laughs> But he's the one who said, I think... In, in our moment of glory? Yeah. In this, in the in the radio play, he's like, do you think you should prepare this? And they're like, why would you? And he's like, I guess you don't want to abandon your ship, do you? And he's like, I guess you're right. So they address that. But in the radio play, there's this extended scene where Brock Peters mind rapes Leia. Yeah, yeah. And you have the whole scene where, you know, in the, in the, in the movie, it cuts. Yeah, yeah. He's but in this... that... that- yeah, droid comes in with the, with the, with the hypodermic <laughs> needle. Yeah, and it's filled with like it looks like uh, he's got freaking a whole bunch of um, uh, uh, what do you call that shit? The the the, the um, Michael Jackson propofol uh, in it. Um, but uh, it's really fucked up. He like yeah. he's like you know it, it's an extended sequence where he's like, and then to you know when you end up realizing later on in the series what the relationship of Leia and Vader is. Yeah, There's yeah. even more of a layer of uh, <laughs> fucked upness of the... But, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed Brock Peters as as, as um, yeah. Skywalker. I thought he was great. And then, uh, what's his face? Uh, Perry King, who plays Han, who auditioned. They end up using him. He's very good. He's very Han-esque. And I bet you people who maybe didn't know might have even thought that it was Harrison Ford playing yeah, the role. Yeah. So, I listened to this. We had a big th- th- uh, hurricane uh, a few years ago, I don't know if I was a member of a Sandy or whatever, but I lived in an apartment on the 38th floor, and I had really shitty windows, and the and the winds were so big that I was afraid that the not that the glass would break, but that like literally the window frame would like pop out yeah. into my apartment, and I was I was there by my I was living in there by myself, and I was and I was so frightened that this was, <laughs> that it was going to wreak havoc because like the whole building was swaying. Yeah. So what I did was I went in and I. Uh, I went into the bathroom and I put the toilet seat down. Yeah, and I just sat in the bathroom. You listened to four hours, all thirteen and I, episodes. And I sat and I listened to the Star Wars radio show. That's how I listened to for like four hours. I sat in the bathroom, like worried that my what if I came out, my, the, I'd be killed by uh, story. But one of the reasons why I was so I'm excited sorry, five hours and fifty seven minutes is the running time. One of the reasons why I was so excited to do this movie is that this movie, probably more than any other movie we will do on this show, is is important to me. 
I would not know Dion. This was the 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 Star Wars movies were the reasons why I wanted to make movies when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, it was this. There was a, in the nineties a set came out with the with the trilogy, the original trilogy in VHS, and there was a fourth tape called uh, From Star Wars to Jedi: The Making of a Saga, and it was all about making movies. And we've talked on this show before about how uh, many people of our generations that wanted to make movies wanted to make movies because of these making of yeah. documentaries and special effects and getting to see like the wizardry of how movie magic was made and shows like movie magic and yeah. stuff like that. And, uh, I, for years, once when I got, I got my dad gave me those. He, my dad asked me one year for Christmas, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, I want the star Wars movies. And they're not even out yet. I and, want them. And then f- that set was in the early nineties. So from like ninety ninety one. For years, I watched at least one of them a week. Yeah. You know, probably Empire Strikes Back more than most, but I would watch... I would watch at least one of them a week. A couple of months ago, I got to go see Empire Strikes Back at Lincoln Center with a full orchestra. Oh, yeah. Scoring the movie. Expensive, wasn't it? It was like 150 Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't want to say. Yeah, I know it was expensive, that thing. But uh, it was awesome. This movie literally changed my life. Yeah, I, I mean... And put me on a trajectory that I wouldn't be here now doing a... a Saturday Night Movie uh, Sleepovers? Doing Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers if it wasn't for the Star Wars movies. Yeah, it did. My, Star Wars wasn't as nearly as impactful for me. I mean, I my mov- my movies were more... I was more of a Star Trek kid. But I always... I mean, I was a big Trekkie. My mom know, was a Trekkie. Yeah, so. you're in the freaking... You're, you're, you, you, <laughs> we had the... I had the shirts when I was little, yeah. like the Star Trek uniform shirts. And, so know. I was very into Star Trek, too. I never went one or the other. And I think with me, it was probably because I wasn't allowed to collect the Star Wars toys. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably... Since I never had them, I, I have to go over to my friend's house to play with the ad at to sure. play with the Millennium Falcon. My cousin Jimmy had all you know? the toys. I was always so jealous because we had, we had some, but we didn't have a lot. Of uh, the Star Wars stuff, we by that time he we went with GI Joe and whatnot. Um, to wrap up the um, radio special premiered, I think it's March the seventh or eighth, nineteen eighty one, and it kind of revitalized radio. And I think nowadays that should be something they need to do. They should dramatize all. I mean, they did. I know they did it with the other movies, but I think that'd be a great in this day and age. Why don't they dramatize movies on you know make radio like have it be another business yeah. that they used to do in the forties? We uh, you know should just give a shout out our friend that we mentioned a lot on the show, Mike Vanderbilt. He has a podcast. Uh, and you should follow him on Twitter. Uh, I think it's at Mike, at Mike Vanderbilt because with his uh, his podcast, they've done their own adaptations of the radio series. Oh wow! First two movies already. Wow, done. And yeah, they're now this year, right around this time. I don't know when it comes out, uh, but right in December. They're going to be doing Return of the Jedi. That's pretty impressive. And uh, you should give it a listen because there's a very good chance. <laughs> You might hear some familiar a of, voices, a couple of cameos. Yeah, or you may people. not notice even where we are if we're, if we're in it. Uh, but yeah, they've done, they've redone. There's the Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back this year. They're doing uh, <clears throat> Return of the Jedi. If, uh, you know, it's 2000, December of 2017 for people in the future. In the future, and uh, lastly, Dave and Alan Greer, who we know from in Night of Li- um, in Living Color, he was in the radio show. Night of the Living Color. In the Night of Living Color. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Imagine that mashup. <laughs> No, but he's can't he's billed in the radio play. I don't know where he was, and that, I found that amazing to me. I liked the thing with R two D two. They explained that he learned how to play chess at a refueling station. He had to know how to play. That, yeah. You know they, that up. And then lastly, I thought the two Tie Fighters that the scene where 
you know when they're, they're they had the whole dog fighting sequence where you know they're they're on the uh, the guns on the Millennium Falcon and Luke and yeah, uh, yeah. I thought those were the two worst Tie Fighters I've ever seen. I mean, they just are just flying. I mean, they couldn't <laughs> knock out the, the Millennium Falcon, you know. And then I was a little disappointed with Vader how he spun away. It's like I you know I was kind of like I wish they yeah, had a little yeah. more of an ending. But at that time, I guess they didn't know. There's so much more know, to talk yeah, about. Yeah, uh, the foils two of hours. Luke and Han and and Han's story and yeah. all this stuff. And with the radio shows, we should note, if you're interested and you like this one, you should Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi yeah. have John Lithgow as Yoda. That's amazing. I, yeah, and uh, what's-his-face shows up as well in it, too? Uh, um, Billy D. Williams. Um, yeah, I know plays, they did. He does Lando. They did uh, Empire kind of around uh, when Empire came out, but they don't do Return of the Jedi until like 10 years later in the 90s, and I think... I don't that, think they did it for radio. Yeah, it was something. Like the, the syndication rules changed, and people were going to have to pay for the syndication per, oh, that's per why. station. So what they did was the company that released Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, the radio uh, dramatizations on like tape and CD, they funded it just for like an audiobook type Uh-oh. thing. So I don't think it, I don't know if it's ever aired on radio, but at least it didn't. So they never made it until like 1996. Yeah. So I know that it's short. It's much yeah. shorter. I know that's it's in like there. Six episodes. And I heard Perry King's like talking like, you know, because hey. <laughs> yeah, they're getting all older by that point. <laughs> and I don't think Hamill's in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's not, that's a shame. He might have been busy doing, uh, I don't know, Batman. Or yeah. Some or shit, say, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. He's doing the Joker. But I think to answer the question at the beginning, I think it's, it's like basically it's like a fairy tale. It's like a Wizard of Oz. It's like a Treasure Island like that. Oh, I mean, it's very you much, know, you know, you know that, that person like you're in saying. Kansas. Yeah. Anymore. You know, and that's why it's so appealing. It's that basic idea of a fairy tale. And, you know, the, and the, a reason you know, why it would appeal to a young audience. Princess, knights, you know, all that kind of a thing. You know, every kid wants to be on an adventure. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's his face from uh, Jack Hawkins from Treasure Island or Dorothy Gale from Wizard of Oz, you know, and all this. You're going on. This, but the know, beautiful thing is he managed, and I think maybe he lost touch with with episodes one through three, uh, with things like Jar Jar Binks, is that he managed to tell a, a tale for children that was not a child's tale. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that it appealed to everybody. And yeah. it wasn't childish in in its execution or how the story was told. And and that's you know, also one of the reasons why it was so big. But Star Wars, no, no movie had ever done what Star Wars did, uh, and no movie had ever been like Star Wars. Yeah, it may and not. It just it changed the way. Changed. And, it, and what he did after, like we said, with Industrial Light Magic, after Empire Strikes Back, for Empire Strikes Back, he created even more businesses that he, Lucas and the business he's had, he made. In conjunction with Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, he's had a hand in, in almost every major Hollywood picture. Uh, because, picture of, because of you with, know, remastering be sound. Remastering for Skywalker sound. Uh, he created Dolby. Yeah. Surround sound. It's all like kinds he said of he created crazy stuff. The, His company's created the Pixar camera, uh, like computer system, which is now Pixar business. They, they branched off. Uh, so without Star Wars, it's out of for world. better or worse, I'm sure people yeah. would argue that maybe it's for the worse, but for me... I mean, he created uh, he created a Hollywood movie system it's in that place. gave yeah. us so many movies that we talk about on the show. Yeah, I know that there is. I was saying before the cast, there was reverse arguments. I saw one on saying that the Jedi. There's if you go looking Google, you can find that they say the Jedi are the actually the bad guys in the movies. Which, that's a pretty interesting argument, and then also that. Star Wars has, they say, ruined the movie industry for people because of the formulaicness of it. It's turned it into, yeah. which I guess are opposing arguments. If you if you go that way and you're not a Star Wars fan, maybe 
if you look those up, they have some pretty interesting arg- arguments in those venues. But and if you really examine stuff, unfortunately, there's <clears throat> a lot of uh, things going on in the series politically that uh, are unfortunately mirror a lot of what's happening <laughs> yeah. in the world today. Uh, but it's it's just it goes to show you that you know uh, history in some ways is c- cyclical, and uh, by doing a story that kind of feeds on so many so much world history and also mythology and religion it's universal that so many things are universal yeah we're all a bunch of hypocrites it's great so thank you very much for listening to our uh very special uh present episode of this uh spectacular we'll be back next week with one more for the year sun's coming up Dan. yeah it's getting, getting late, late. I, I can't wait to see what happens in, in empire strikes back that's going to be exciting to see where the story goes. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait till Empire yeah. Strikes Back comes out. I want to see what, you know, what's going to happen with uh, who who Luke's going to end up with. I can't wait to see, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the hope Luke resolves about his, his dad getting murdered by Vader. We're going to figure that out. <laughs> we're not saying that we're doing Empire Strikes Back next week. We've got another, you know, Christmas-related movie, but this was just a little Christmas present for everybody. And after that, we'll see you in a big old 2018. So we hope... 2018. Yeah, we, we, we hope you liked what you did. We got another one that's, over, that's clocked over three hours. So uh, that's always fun for us all. So... Um, Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Uh, Hope you're having a happy holiday season, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Later.